Hello, everybody, and welcome to another, another episode of A Journey Through Time and Stuff. My name is Aaron. Uh, today, I'm going to call myself Ol' Aaron Too Big a Feet. Yeah, Ol' Aaron Too Big a Feet, because I have size 15 shoes, and it's really hard to buy some that look that don't look like skis. Uh, so that's my problem this week. Anyways, this episode is fantastic. Um, I... I really think you guys are actually going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, I had a, a chat with a good buddy of mine, uh, John Michael Cortez. I know him really as John, Johnny, Johnny Boy, uh, the amazing drummer, Mini Mike Portnoy, um, many things that, that I know him by. I'm just kidding. None of those are real. Um, he is the drummer for Core. He is the drummer for Sons of Leviathan. Um, he actually is getting ready to do a gig soon. He talks about that in this thing. He talks about a lot of his upbringing. This guy's great, man. Um, we got into some really cool proggy talk. We got into musician talk. We talked about, we talked about Nickelback for like 20 minutes. Um, you guys, I think are really going to love it. He is such a cool dude. Our brains meld so collectively. We thought this was going to be an hour to an hour and a half long conversation. And it turned into three hours because we melded together. Well, uh, we timed warped. To, we time warped together. Uh, he had a drink or two. I had a drink or two. All of it was just wonderful. Um, a melding of minds, and I can't. I can't. You know, I couldn't ask for a better podcast. Uh, so without further ado, the wonderful John Michael Cortez. I hope you guys enjoy. Oh, and just an FYI, friends. This uh, this first minute, 30 seconds or so of the podcast, the audio is a little shaky and then it gets pretty good after then uh, because of, you know, cell phone monitor, microphone restrictions. Uh, audio quality is the best it can be. You guys will love it. John. There it is. Okay. Hey man. Yeah. What's up, buddy? <laughs> oh, not too much, man. Just uh just getting ready to relax and unwind for the crazy day I have to uh practice tomorrow. So <laughs> Oh good, good. Music practice. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Just got a, a, a gig that's uh you know, just like a lot, it, all the songs are pretty easy, but it's like a lot of cover stuff. So it's like, it's a, just a big list of songs that I need to learn, but it's fun. You know, it's all like eighties and seventies kind of like just generic sort of pop rock, like type of, type of deal. So I'm Fuck pretty, yeah. I'm pretty, yeah. good, man. That's fucking great. Good to see you. Your beard is looking most epic. The quarantine going on. Yeah, yeah, man. It's 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 getting very caveman like up in here, you know. It's <laughs> you're, you're, I see you haven't lost your beard either. It's looking really nice. No, man. No, I've kept it uh I've kept it going with the hair going away. Uh <laughs> I have to do something so I don't just kind of look like a walking penis, you know. Like, there has to be something that distinguishes head from genitalia. There you go. So so how am I audio wise? Can, can you hear me fine? This is this is good. Okay. Here, yeah. let me turn these. There you go. Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah. That's that's perfect, man. That's great. So, uh, what, what do you want to talk about today? Oh, well, no. You. You. You're a fucking interesting. First, first, I wanted to say cheers. Uh, I, 
I have a celebratory shot of whiskey at every podcast, and uh, I got a pocket right here. So, oh hey, cheers! And then uh, you know those out there, cheers with us. Definitely. No man. Uh, well, one, you're a super fucking interesting dude. I uh, we met we met six years ago. Right. We played a show in Portland uh, at the Ash Street on Halloween Eve. And in t- October 30th of 2014, that was when we played a show together. Yes. Yes. God, that was a, that was my first and only time in that city, but I loved it so much. Yeah, man. No, it, it's great. And in fact, um, Oh my God, you still have that. No kidding. I do. I do. This was, we played with you guys and this was when this EP came out. You are going to be awesome or we are going to be awesome. And, uh, had a few, bangers on it from um you know that came out then on human paradigm later you know which was which was great um and in fact dude i tell you what i still rock the fragile break all the time oh cool right on that song that song is fucking great um i just wanted to kind of show you i thought you'd think that was pretty cool that uh you know i don't know how long it's been since you've seen one of those in the in the copy god forever and a half like it's been forever and a half i mean aside from the ones that like i have just laying around my apartment somewhere like to see people like actually like oh look i still have this yeah it's been a while for sure that's fucking awesome anyway no um so take me back take me to a young john uh where did you know did you grow up in southern california is that where you're from uh no no i grew up uh, are, are we recording all this right now, by the way? Yeah, all we're right. going, man. Oh, okay, cool. All right, perfect. Uh, I just, I just was curious. Uh, so, game, game face on. Uh, yeah, so I, I grew up, uh, I grew up in a small town in uh, Connecticut, actually, like the tri-state area of Connecticut. Where, for those of you who don't know what tri-state is, it's just where New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut all come together. And uh, so I, I grew up in a small town called Monroe, which was, um, you know, just you're, you're kind of like your stereotypical suburban town. So, I when, guess. so when you say small town, po- yeah. population wise, you're talking a couple thousand, you're talking like 30,000, you're talking. Yeah, it, it couldn't have been more than like four or five thousand people. OK, so legit small yeah. town. Yeah, because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm originally from Alaska, and I grew up in the same place. In fact, the town I grew up in had like 12, 1,300, so. Okay, okay, so, so you, so you kind of know where I'm coming from, where it's like, you know, half the time you didn't, uh, uh, what was it, like half the time if you needed something, like you never got it in town, you always had to go like two towns over, because yeah. you, you're like, oh wow, like, you know, there's a supermarket here, like if I need to go grocery shopping, like I have to kind of go, you know, X amount of, uh spots over so and you know or even like to go to the movies or to go to the mall or something it's like you could never do any of that in your town you always had to go somewhere else to go and do that and and that was kind of where um music became like a very cool thing to get into because you were just like well all of the other options really were you know uh aside from playing music it was more like you know, there, there was a, like, the stereotypical small town, always a huge drug problem among, you know, teens and whatnot. Yep. So you could either go party and drink and do drugs all the time, 
or, you know, basically just kind of be in your house and just play video games 24 seven. And, and then I kind of just like bobbled around with a few different instruments and, and nothing was, nothing was ever like really right for me. Like I tried, um, what, okay. You know, so, so, so you grew up, you grew up, you grew up there. Um, how long did you live in that town? Like all the way through high school? Like, yeah. So I, I graduated my senior year. Uh, I graduated my senior year in 2010 oh. and I moved, I moved to California in, uh, the summer of 2012. Gotcha. So, so yeah, like about like nine, like 19, 20 years. Okay. Okay. So, so shit. Okay. So you graduated high school in 2010. That means yeah. in like 2000, right around 2000, you were like eight years old, right? Eight, yeah, nine years old. Eight, okay. Eight All right. So, so, so take me back to that. Take me back to that young guy. Uh, were uh, any of your parents musicians? No, actually, funny enough, neither of my parents were, uh, musically inclined at all but i did have an uncle and i'm still to this day who was a full-time musician and he was it still plays out all the time and uh he's a guitar uncle steve he's a guitar player and uh dude you know i got it uncle steve oh yeah. nice yeah uncle steve's, uncle steve's are the best um, they are yeah. and so he he played out all the time and i just remember being a kid and like going to see him do that. And I was like, that's so freaking cool. Yeah. Like, that's, that's super cool. Like I, I want to go and do that. You did, know? Did, and, did you have siblings? Yeah. yeah I, I have an older sister okay. um, I, and she's, uh, and, and we still talk. So she, she's out here. And uh, funny enough, she was actually the first one that came out here. Cause she went to, uh, uh, she went to college out here. So it was, her mindset, uh, she graduated high school two years before I did, and her mindset was like, let's just, you know, I just want to get away as far as I can go. Where can I go? And it was it was California, you know. And then I remember coming out here a, a couple of times just to, like... In her. high school still? Yeah, in high school uh, to visit her um, for random, just like random holidays, like one-off holidays, and... It's like, man, this place is pretty awesome. Like, why don't, why don't I live here? Like, I really should live here. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that was, and then I just kind of eventually pulled the trigger, but, but yeah. That's awesome, man. Okay. So, so you're, you're like eight or nine years old. It's year, it's year 2000. Do you, uh, do you remember a lot from Y2K? Cause, cause you know, just, just to let you know, in 2000, I was in eighth grade going into ninth grade. And so. Okay. So I'm like five years older than you, I'm guessing, because I graduated in 05. Okay, yeah, so somewhere around. So, you know, yeah. so so I, I was like, you know, did, did, at eight and nine, did you have any recollection? Did you have anything that you were, Y2K? Was that a... Yeah, you know, I, I can remember when everybody talked about the new millennia, and I remember the massive dot-com scare that happened as well. Like, and, and I kind of... Um, uh, remember that you know everybody freaked out because it was like the computers and the software that was in computers wasn't equipped to yeah. handle any of worth of programming or or, or some, whatever the whatever the instance was. I don't exactly remember all the details off the top of my head uh, still now, but I do remember when people freaked out about that and 
everybody made like a big deal about like the stock market and how they thought like all those computers were going right. to go out just going to be like just total anarchy did did uh, did you guys have a computer in the house at that time cuz okay small town wise year 2000 did you were you guys technologically up in it or we did and we had we had a gateway i remember we had a gateway computer with uh wow. with windows 98 on it yep. and it was um i remember specifically my dad paid like extra extra bucks to get i think it was like a one gig hard drive on it or like it was either a one gig or 500 meg but and i remember that was a lot of memory back then that was just a lot and it's so crazy to think that we're in (laughs) with with technology it's so crazy to think we're in terabytes now and like people just don't remember it's like that like you know 500 megabytes like that max a hard drive on a computer could could handle you know and it's just so crazy and and they were all analog they spun up you know they were they were like huge and they were literal disk drives you know now it's crazy i pull up uh, just a flash drive and this is 500 gigabytes yeah yeah you know and so we're talking 10 times a factor of 10 bigger in just you know, 20. Okay. So here's another question because from me, you know, in the, in the 2000s, um, growing up in Alaska, we were like on average three to five years behind the rest of the country. And so, so I wonder, I, I've always pictured that in the same time, um, did, you know, people in the, in the United States, we didn't think about it like any other way than, you know, everybody was kind of like, had the most modern stuff. So w- when you in a small town, did you like even up, you know, through the mid two thousands into, into school into, you know, d- did you feel isolated in a small town, like not being part of, Oh, say big city, New Jersey, or did you kind of recognize that you were so connected to everybody around like the rest of the United States? How, how would that feel being in a small town in a very busy populated state? Um, yeah, I, I mean, in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. Okay. Because, um, you know, it, it was like, it, no huge major concerts would ever really come to Connecticut. It was like, if you wanted to go and see like, to, for example, like say you wanted to go see a stadium show, whether it was Aerosmith or say Metallica, or if you wanted to go and check out like Ozfest. Um, you know, nine times out of 10, it was like you traveled to New York or you traveled to New Jersey. So we had a big stadium arena uh, in, in Connecticut. It was in gotcha. Hartford, capital Hartford. It was called the Meadows. And there would be some stuff that would come there. Like I remember Warp Tour would go there, um, you know, RIP Warp Tour. And yeah. then uh, Warp Tour would go there. I'm trying to think of other festivals that would go there. Uh, Mayhem Fest, when that was around, that would go there. And, and you would occasionally get some big artists that would come through. Like, I remember, I can still remember seeing Rush there. I can remember uh, at the Meadows. I can remember seeing Dream Theater there. Dream Theater shirt. Uh, I'm wearing yeah, it. I was just going to say, you know, your, uh, your tank top made me just uh, think about that show and have that pop into my head. And, uh, but a lot of time, but it was still, even for those guys, 
it was still pretty infrequent. You know, most of the time you would either have to go see, like if you wanted to go see Ozzy, you'd have to make a tri- make a day trip um, and go to Madison Square Garden and take the train in uh, and make like a whole day trip out of it. Or if you wanted to go see... Okay, but so, so I guess you're kind of actually really getting to my... You, even though you're in a small town... Yeah. Going to New York was a day trip. Yeah, you know, so, it was So you totally, felt you felt even at a young age totally connected to the big city. Like like you you weren't it wasn't just something that you kind of envisioned existed out there. It was kind of a real tangible you could touch it even at a young age. I I suppose, you know, I I think with that young age that the ignorance of like just wanting to be there, but having to be like, Oh God, like we got to go and we got to go drive 30 minutes to the train station. And then we got to like wait an hour and then go there, you know, being a kid, you were kind of like, I just, I just want it. I just want it now. You know what I mean? Sure. I don't want to do all of that type of stuff. So I, I think in hindsight, yes, I would agree with you, but at, at the time, I didn't really see it that way. Um, okay, but by high school, I guess, even though you're still in this small town, you know, you're a sophomore, a junior, 15, 16, 17 years old. By that time, you were like, okay, we're we're just a little bit away, a little bit of work away from big city shit. Yeah, you know, if, if, we're, if we're referring to the, you know, 2008-year-olds, 9-year-olds me, then yeah, I, I definitely did not see it that way. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, because you know, I'm I'm thinking like like from from my perspective, you know, I was in the same small town graduating high school too, and I did the same thing. Um shortly after high school, uh, you know, actually literally the summer after high school going, I gotta get the fuck out of Dodge too. And yeah. you know, instead of you moving east coast to west coast, I moved from Alaska to Arizona. And so oh. Yeah, yeah. And so I went from like a cold climate to a hot climate and a lot of people and, you know, and and mm-hmm. and I definitely had that juxtaposition too, but that was the first time that I was ever like, oh shit, I can drive to a shopping mall. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, so, okay, okay, so um, when did you find music as more than just a listening thing? Because- most, you know, I talk to a lot of musicians on the podcast, and most of them have a very visceral experience listening to music at a younger age where they realize it's more than just something they enjoy listening to. It's actually like, I feel like I want to make this. So do, did you have that experience? Do you remember it? Y- yes. Um, I, I remember vividly. So the way that it really started for me was you know, when I, I can still remember back my, when my mom uh, had her like big vinyl record player and we would listen to like uh, like Elton John and, uh, you know, just like Queen and all kinds of, you know, uh, totally groups, groups like that. So it was right around when I was like. 12 or 13 because that was when i discovered uh you know dream theater and rush and you know, oh that early you discovered yeah. prog early yeah oh yeah you know and, and even who was the prog influence on you um it, it's kind of a mul- it was like a multitude of of different guys but um it, it came down like to like high school friends or school friends things like that or 
Right, right. Okay. Well, because like if I would be into one prog group, it would be kind of like, oh, if you like these guys, then you should go and check out this band. So it was like, you know, Dream Theater was my induction into it. And then a lot of my friends would just be like, well, if you're a big fan of Dream Theater, like go and listen to Rush because Rush laid a lot of the groundwork for Dream Theater. And I'm like, okay, wow. great. And, um, you know, I can remember when, uh, you know, my my sister's boyfriend at the time in high school was like a huge Metallica fan. And I sure. remember really getting into like listening to Master of like the, the prog elements of like Master of Puppets. And Justice for All. Yeah, that's, you know, even though it's not deliberately like Metallica will never admit that it's a prog album, but it's, you know, arguably one of the greatest prog albums ever. And well, uh, even if you listen to Hardwired, that album, they have some proggy fucking songs on that album. Yeah, you know, and, and I and I know that it, it's kind of like aside from ripping on Nickelback, it's kind of like the cool thing to make fun of Metallica now, but. I, I got to say, you know, like Death Magnetic post, yeah. you know, I, I've been pleased with a lot of their work because Death Magnetic was kind of them getting back into the long songs again. And they would do like, you know, this seven and a half minute epics. Well, uh, and and, and yeah, Death Magnetic was the first one again in what, four or five albums that they had Suicide and Redemption. They did an instrumental for the first yeah. time in five albums. Yeah, I, th I, th I still think the last... It was Anjustice. They, they did was, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. To Live is to Die right after Burton died. And um, so so after that, I, I got into like, and then kind of falling into that pit hole, everybody was like, well, if you're really into to that, you should check out Tool and how Tool is like this amalgamation of metal and prog and then falling in love with danny carey and i and i remember studying every musician in every band just so vividly and yeah. would want to go and see like okay these guys play really tight but like why like what makes this person special and what makes that person special and i would learn every single um just every little single thing about every person in each one of those bands and what made them special. And, and, and I just would just geek out on that stuff forever. I can still remember summer nights where I would be on my computer until three o'clock in the morning and just watching, you know, back before YouTube was like fully a thing and Google, you could still go to Google video. Yeah. You know, like, oh yeah. Still do that. And, and would look up like interviews with all of these guys and even, you know, listening to Porcupine Tree and getting into drummers like Gavin Harrison, and, you know, Gavin Harrison, Jeff Beccaro, Mike Portnoy um, and Danny Carey. I mean, if I could, if you held a gun to my head and you asked me who my favorite drummer was, um, I would have to say two. And the two would be Danny Carey and Mike Portnoy because they just kind of. That was where I wanted to um, emulate a lot of my playing from. Uh, it would be the two of them because I liked how they could be very clinical and mathematical, like, you know, a Simon Phillips or a Neil Peart, and be very musical, but they would kind of come in. Well, they had groove. Uh, yeah, and, 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 but they could kind of come in and still have, you know, say the balls and the attitude of somebody like a Dave Lombardo from Slayer. Sure. Uh, or, or even, um, you know, somebody like uh, uh, Peter Chris from Kiss, who would just like, you just like beat the well, crap 
drums and hit them so hard. For me, that was John Bonham. Yeah, I mean, oh, Bonzo for sure, yeah. Or Bill Bruford. Yeah, yeah. An, you another, know, for King Crimson. And you listened to, that was, so, so it's funny. You kind of had it, so you were into prog before Metallica. Wow. So mine, mine was the other way around. I found the the Metallicas and the Aerosmiths and the Megadeth and uh, Pantera and that kind of niche first, and then stumbled into Dream Theater. And then Dream Theater because of Pull Me Under and uh, you know it was like it was like Train of Thought era of Dream Theater when I really first found Dream Theater because Train of Thought is arguably the heaviest album they've ever put out. Um, And and so it was like uh, Train of Thought and then Systematic Chaos. That era was my Dream Theater introduction era. Um, but, But I didn't get into them or into prog really until probably oh... 2010 so i had i had like a seven year gap of being a metalhead and having no prog uh real roots tied into it okay um and and being a bass player i've always been a rhythm guy i i tried to be a guitar player nah wouldn't work (laughs) wouldn't work it was uh, and my feet are too retarded or too uh you know uneducated to be a, a a drummer and so because i don't have the the hand foot separation that doesn't work i just became a bass player <laughs> yeah man well i i think it's you know bass bass players are are, are a very unique kind of um position uh, and because it's like you know you take so arguably you know the two obviously there's a ton of band dynamics that that go into the amalgamation of what makes a band right but to me you know arguably if you were to split it into two things you would say melody melody and rhythm yeah and yeah I feel like the bass player is if you could if you could take those two characteristics and put them into like let's say just bricks stacked on top of each other the bass player is almost like that sliver of concrete between those two bricks like you are kind of the bridge between the melody and between the rhythm and and i think it's a very that's a very unique position to have when you're in a band it is it is if you're in a band because the first one thing i loved and that i've discovered i've loved about music is simplicity and so while I am such a big prog fan, while I am a technical, uh, aspiring technician of the instrument, just as you are, I, I know that, you know, you, you stating your two favorite drummers tells me everything I need to know really about what you, what you push, put into your music. And honestly, I, I talked about it before, um, the fragile break, that song that was on your first thing that came on, you know, human paradigm later, that song to me reminds me of you being Mike Portnoy. Like, (laughs) like there are, there are subtle time trips in that song. You have, you create an overarching groove with such subtle time changes and flops of the beat. Like he did so brilliantly where 
all of a sudden the 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 the, the one hit becomes a two hit and the two hit becomes a one hit and right. the flop of that beat that you do inside of an encapsulated groove was one of the first things when i you know uh when i first discovered you guys it was you had just put out Let, let's rise and that video yeah you know, and, and when you guys were coming up here and we kind of got joined into doing the show, um, I had watched that. That had just come out and I was like, oh, shit, these guys are a three piece. A power trio is my it, I honestly think is the best way to express the completeness of a group's thought into mm-hmm. music is the power trio. I mean, the it's almost undeniable what Rush's sound was because of that. What ZZ Top sound is because of that. What uh, I don't know if you're uh, Lost Lonely Boys. You're a fan of those guys. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I have checked them out. Yeah, in surprisingly incredible musicians and complete sound, and it only takes three instruments. And you know the band the band I'm in now is a power trio, and um and it so. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is the bass player does kind of play that route. If you're in a power trio, he plays that cement layer between the rhythm and the melody. Right, absolutely. It gets I, muddled when you add seconds or third guitars or a second guitar and a keyboardist. I feel like bands decrease the amount of u- utility in bass players the more rhythm instruments get added to the song. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I would definitely agree. I, I think it's, and it also depends on uh, as a player, how you decide to approach the music. I, I mean, and that's sure. kind of, even with drums, it's like, okay, so with drumming, there's a lot of things that you can kind of just throw by the wayside. You know, drummers don't necessarily need to know what a C is or an F flat is, or their major minors, or they, they don't necessarily need to know what counterpoint is or, or all of these things that with just about virtually every other instrument are, are kind of almost a necessity have to be yeah. in terms of the knowledge. But uh, I wanted to really go above and beyond that because it's essentially when you are in a power trio, you are um, sort of forced as a member, you, you have to be more musical than what your well stereotype what your stereotypical title of being in the band sort of represents. And that was kind of why um, I would deliberately go out of my way to, to do these things and learn that type of stuff. Like, like tuning, like tuning your heads to a note. Sure. Oh yeah. Oh sure. You know, I, and I would go and, and, you know, I, I still do what I can to do that to this day. One of the best compliments I've ever received is, um, you know, and not that I'm trying to toot my own horn because you should, kind of <laughs> but this is what I always try to shoot for in playing. And it's very nice when it gets recognized as they say, you were, um, there was a young guy who complimented me once. It was, we did this show a few years ago in Arizona. Uh, we opened for, uh, nine electric, which, oh, uh, yeah. not, around, not around anymore, sadly, but, um, you know, very great guys, great band. And the guy came, there was a guy who came up to me and said, uh, you know, you, your playing is very musical. And, uh, and that meant more than anything in the world to me, because that's what 
I've always shot for when I write parts or, or compose or anything is to just, you know, you see a lot of these newer bands coming out and the drums are really just kind of nothing but just sort of a dull thud in the back. Well, and I with that, you know, I want to be musical with my playing. Yeah. Um, the part of the problem is, is, you know, with that, um, a lot of songs are written without bands in the same room. And so, sure. and so you get guitar players who also are drum programmers. Mm, yeah. And you then get guitar players writing riffs to, to drums that they program to sound like drums that should be under guitar riffs. It was the same problem that when Dream Theater came out with Dream Theater, right when Mangini joined, and Petrucci wrote all the riffs, and he programmed the drums for his riffs. And you can tell on that album, that is a, those are, Mangini played drums parts written by a guitar player. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I I think these these newer records have given him uh, the opportunity to be a lot more creative, and and, and being... You know, and I'm sure, you know, you and I can level on this being both massive drink eater fans. Uh, I have nothing but the utmost respect for Mike Mangini. I think he's a, he's a brilliant guy, and he's he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He's very well educated with the instrument, but Portnoy had a specific ear and a heart and soul that went into that band that I feel like isn't there anymore was very to me portnoy was very good at keeping dream theater with the time well knew what was in and would be like guys like i think we should kind of take this approach to the record and everybody would be like okay yeah like let's give it a go and see kind of what comes out well yeah you know he was he was the a, a figurehead of their creativity um, I think you talked about counterpoint already. I think him and Petrucci were the counterpoint to each other in the writing style. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, he was he was the yin to Petrucci's yang. Absolutely, yeah. both opposing but yet complementary aspects. Well, and also he was the instability in the band, and so what you saw in the early days that I thought made them so attractive was the. Their commitment to the, the the challenge of writing the music they undertook. I mean, no one who is completely sane tries to write Octavarium. <laughs> no, no, there, there's no way, you know. And that was, but, yeah. but you find you find also that those same things that created what we what what attracted us as listeners pushed the band apart, and so. I find now with Mangini, while maybe it seems like they've lost a little bit of the pizzazz of Portnoy, you know, adding the little bit of flavor, adding adding something that wasn't quite as rudiment as Mangini puts out. I also think Mangini now adds a layer of predictability that makes the rest of the band be able to breathe a little more. And yeah. You know, and I heard it in in their in, in the, the 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 newest album. Um you you're hearing songs that to me 
are moving again. They're they're moving around. And while it's not kind of this big flowing experience like an octavarium or or change of seasons or in the presence of enemies or one of these big moving part songs. Right. They are starting to move again. It's not breaking all illusions anymore. You know, it's it's really kind of flow. I mean, Barstool Warrior is a fan fantastic song and that and that's a song written with heart it, it doesn't sound like a robot playing drums on that song sure and, and even if you look at some some tracks like uh you know all, my philosophy is is hey man like all credit where credits do like regardless of what genre of music it is or yeah. who right you know and bridges in the sky is still today like you know the the tempo changes and the time changes that they they do where they they do that jump where it goes from like uh, that beginning groove where it shoots from like you know six to seven and then like to five and kind of how they just really cleverly draw that line through it to just yeah. make it and, and and to me like the one thing that I've always enjoyed about Portnoy even though that Portnoy didn't write that was you know he would. You know, when him and people like, uh, you know, people like Danny Carey or, and, and even even Simon Phillips in a lot of ways, you know, when they danced in like 9-8 or 11-8 or, um, you know, 5 or 7, they would make it. And still to this day, they make it sound just as cool as when they play in 4-4. Four four. Yeah. You know, times where you can hear in some of these prog bands that are a little bit newer where they try these odd times and it's, and it's very jerky. Like it doesn't feel good. And, and, and that was, you know, one of the things that I've always really liked, even about Gavin Harrison's playing. Cause what? Gavin Harrison is, you know, he, he's very good at, um, Gavin Harrison, amazing in my opinion, at making odd times feel like they're not odd times, mm. just like. Yeah. 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 Harrison and Carrie do really good. Um, what they, what, what, what I find that's a little, and I'll even throw Portnoy in that in that group, um, because you know, not I'm not a drummer, but I I pride myself on being a counter, and so while I'm playing bass, I'm counting at sixteenth notes on almost every song I play, even though the the the, the hi hats going at you know quarter or eighth notes. Um, I'm trying to count those sixteenth notes because I want to be able to come in on a thirteen sixteen. I want to be able to to turn around on those fun times that f- feel out of groove to people who've never thought about it. And well, and so like Danny Carey, um, and you know, especially he does a lot of polyrhythms, and so yep. he will have one hand keeping that rolling four or that rolling three and then do his subdivisions inside of those fours or threes. And it's no easy task, but it's, it's, it's kind of dividing the line between what some of these kind of newer prog bands do who start with, you know, maybe program drums where if you program a nine, eight, Mm -hmm. it just sounds off. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Marco Miniman. I, I know you know Marco. Oh, oh lo- love that guy. He's he's very sweet. I, I had a brief, a very brief interaction with him once at the Whiskey A Go Go, but he's a he's a very sweet, sweet guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's he he is my favorite drummer of all time. <laughs> 
Like, yeah, you're, let me put it this way. Your number one pick is a very good number one pick. <laughs> because I, because I watched, I, I, I'm, I'm such a big aristocrats fan and, and yeah. those guys just, you know, between him and Guthrie, you can't ask for anything better than that pairing in just no. the, the, the randomness and the wildness that their brains incur. And yet I watched the old audition tapes of Marco auditioning for Dream Theater. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but yeah, you, I, when I watched that, I went, oh, this guy needs to take Mike's place. Like he, he has the groove. Marco is one of the only guys who can take a legit red, 17s over nines mm-hmm. and make it sound like he's doing a three, four waltz. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, he, I, there's no, I mean, Danny can do good shit. Um, uh, Jorgensen, all these guys can do really good stuff, but there's something about the brain style. And that was what Portnoy could do was take this noodleness and turn it into something that, Someone who couldn't count could appreciate it for the entirety of the piece, and they would never know the subtlety of what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, you know, and that's kind of where uh, there even uh, one of my favorite tool bits was always that break in Lateralis where it gets really quiet, the bass comes in, and, and yeah. still going in the six eight, and underneath it where Danny Carey plays double time five eight on the hi hat, and he yes. just goes and wants to go in like one two. Three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. And underneath it, he's just going on the high at one, two, three, four, five. 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 But you would never know. It's well, like what you're talking. About. Like you would just never <laughs> until until you realize that after eight measures, the snare hits again on the same time. Like yep. you have to count. You have to count eight measures into the future to realize they just resolved this huge discrepancy. In, in, in time signature. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great. It's great. It's, it's what, you know, it's, um, okay. We've, we've jumped, let me go back because I think we just talked into the future a little bit. So, so, (laughs) so you're, you're in high school, you're, you're, you're a huge prog head. You're slowly discovering metal, not prog, um, and eighties metal. I'm I'm assuming you're a big kind of eighties, nineties metal guy, right? Yeah, I, I mean, d- depending on who the group was. Well, it's then, funny because you mes- you mentioned Aerosmith, you mentioned Ozzy, you mentioned Metallica, you mentioned um, you you know Tool, obviously, and and so I'm just was kind of building a, a profile of of oh, sure. the stuff that came off your head. So so when were you in a band in high school? Did you play music in high school? Did you um, did you take that transition from Okay, I love the shit out of prog to I want to be a prog drummer. Like you you already mentioned you went through a few different instruments, nothing really fit. So kind of take me that time. When in high school, when did you pick up sticks for the first time? When did you want to Yeah, take me through that. Sure. Um so I I first started playing drums or wanted to play drums when I was 15 and a lot of that was you know, just watching, um, you know, the R30 drum solo from Hurt and even like Dream Theater's 
that is my exact reaction. And then, uh, you know, even watching Dream Theater's like uh, Live at Budokan DVD with like, you know, the Portnoy solo. Instrumentally, instrumentally today from Budokan, instrumentally yeah. still is my favorite thing Dream Theater's ever done. Yeah. Oh, same, same. And, and, and for me, that was when I was like, okay, I, I want to, not only do I want to be a drummer, but I want to take this like seriously and I do want to do this and regardless of whatever it's going to take, I want, I want to make that happen. So when I went to go and do that, there was a prog band that we, a prog metal band that was formed and we were, we were a four piece. I think we started off as a six, but then we kind of like, you know, lost enough people. And then our guitar player was, uh, our guitar player actually had a pretty good singing voice and he was like, well, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to doing it. And we were like, yeah, whatever. Uh, and kind of thought nothing of it, but then we heard him. He he actually, and, and I felt really bad because he was a very talented guy, but he was very shy. Um, and he was like, "Well, you know, I, I kind of have like these lyrics that I wrote, and I'd I'd really like to like do uh, this one song and and sing them for you guys if if that's okay." And we were just like, "Okay, like whatever, we'll give it a shot." Because we kind of tried a, a multitude of different uh, singers and in, in, that we went to high school with, and even not just our high school, but a few neighboring high schools and no, nobody was ever really like what we kind of wanted. Sure. And, um, she sang and it was like, we were like, holy shit, like you, you can sing. And, uh, you know, his name was Drew and, and <coughs> kind of nice, like, cause it gave Drew a lot of confidence just in his life, you know, to kind of go out there and really pursue it a lot. We, we kind of, um, just as kids, just in case, you know, like we didn't argue with each other and just being caught up in other priorities and whatnot. The band sort of fell kind of apart a little bit. Was it was it kind of though one of those situations where just getting together with musicians who thought a little differently, who played with a different kind of beat in their own head, um, kind of forged some of the writing styles like you know, those open jam sessions when you're young kids and you're with other young kids and your brains are not only trying to understand who you are as a person, but what you want to become your voice as a musician. Um, did you feel, were, were those the time, like, do you, can you relate to that as being the times where you started finding your voice or were you still clueless yet? Um, It was still, I mean, it, it's really difficult because... I would say... Or wait, let me ask this. Let me ask this. Do you feel like right now you're still trying to find your true voice? In many ways, yes. And okay. I, the reason for that is because um, I, as a musician, I've never really enjoyed being a part of a, a, a group that kind of just takes one idea and sort of refines it over and over and over again. Not that I have any problems with bands that do that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, you look at a band like, a, like Meshuggah is a prime example where it's like, they just take one idea and they keep just doing it over and over to get it more and more perfect. And I think in many ways it's very genius because it kind of cultivates, um, you know, a sense of identity to your band sure. uh, for, what what, for what people can expect. And, you know, obviously having a uh, fan base that expects that every time is, is is very brilliant in a lot of different ways in terms of marketing yourself. But it's just, 
I find that when I when I do something or like if I complete an album cycle or or complete a tour or complete a writing session, I just I get so sick of it that I kind of want to move on and do something else. Right. And, and I think that um, you know the, the downside is just like when you're either in a new album cycle that sounds completely different from the previous, or you're working with a, a new band or a multitude of different bands. Um, you uh, you kind of have to consistently rebrand yourself in many ways, but I think the upside of it is that when people listen to the music that I play in, which is you know very vastly different amongst the the different bands that I, that I work with now, um, is is that they're hearing something and, and listening to something that I really do actually care about, yeah, as to not just creating music for the sake of creating music and that's like really what i try to avoid is this this mod like kind of like what you said where a lot of these bands write songs and they're not even in the same room it's like this serialized i call it the serializing of songs where you have these like rock and metal bands that basically they their sole purpose of writing songs and creating songs is to only be marketable and to only be popular and yeah. it only song specifically only sets up the next song and the next song and that's the only purpose of that song is to set up the album where you may have a couple of good tracks on it but you just have all of this filler that's just very unsatisfying and i really uh musically i i always told myself i never want to get to that point and if i ever did get to that point i would walk okay well well here you brought up a really good point, and, and I was going to bring this up later, but I might as well just do it right now. So, so you're in a bunch of bands, and and a little. I want to get to the other bands, but I know you from Core, and so you guys just put out Contagion. Yes, that's a, a brilliant song for one. Um, Thanks, um, it actually struck me how short it was, and I went, "Ho, oh, look at look at these guys." They've put out a good breadth of music in the last five years. They've gone on a couple cool tours, and then they they had the balls to then say, we're going to put out a two-and-a-half-minute banger just to throw it out. And and I when I, li- when I listen to the song, I don't feel like it is one of those songs that's pushing an agenda or the carryover until the next thing. It is a complete idea. It it is start to finish. It resolves itself, and it's two and a half minutes long. So not only, and you have like four or five different changes in the song. Yes, yes. So not only did you write a prog song, you wrote a two and a half minute prog song disguised as a hard rock song, released seemingly because you guys just wanted to. Yeah, you know, uh, we have a pretty big back catalog, uh, back catalog right now of songs that are currently unreleased sure. from this album cycle, and I'm very excited for. I'll be sure to send them to you when I can because I'm very excited for you to listen to them because they're very song to song. They they range very differently well, in terms of the, song, the dynamic, and ha- and that's what we focus on. Have you have you released an album yet that doesn't range from song to song? <laughs> well, well, the, 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 I, I suppose I'll, you know, the insight behind that is I, I think 
And for everybody who's listening into this, they probably won't really know. Uh, and I'm sure you, you, I mean, you and I already know this, but uh, to kind of break that bubble a little bit for everybody who sure. doesn't. Take them behind the fourth wall. Yeah. For every, all of these bands um, who come out with these albums that say are, you know, 10 or 12 songs long, whether it's uh, regardless of who you are or what type of genre, like in the rock spectrum or the metal spectrum. Most of the time, a lot of these bands get together in these writing sessions before their new album cycle, and they'll write about 30 to 40 songs at a time. Yeah. And you still have, you know, the band manager, everybody in the band and the producer, um, you know, or, or multiple producers, you know, because that's also a thing. It, and they'll kind of come together and say, OK, let's let's all vote on the best new record. Like, and everybody kind of goes around with pen and paper. And so, but the result that you get with that is generally you'll have one album that's great, one album that's okay, and then you'll get a third album that's really not all that good. And we really try to avoid, again, like I talked about, that material nature of being, oh, let's write writing a song. Like, we really always want to avoid I'm losing you a little bit. Hold on. I'm, I'm losing you just a little bit audioly. Uh, you want to go back and re-say that just a tear? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, again, like I was saying, was the um, we, we want to avoid that serialized nature of being in the, you know, the 30 to 40 minutes, or the 30 to 40 song, not minutes, sorry, uh, range of just kind of phoning it in and writing a yeah. song. Yeah, Song. It's we really don't want to write music. We don't, and we as a band, we really don't write music unless if we are inspired to write music. And I feel that that's the we don't. And, and it's kind of like uh, Maynard James Keenan has a great saying about it, where he talks about, you know, in music there should be a logical progression. Like I, I write and and form these songs because I do it for expression and healing and if i don't heal from the art and if i don't heal from the experience i can't genuinely expect anybody else to do that and i've kind of always had the same way it's like you know and he always sums it up where he says if i if i can't heal and get better from what i do how can you expect to do the same thing and that's why we like and for me i, I always try to make sure that we do something different for the songwriting process and we always go out of our way to, you know, try something different and not just phone it in for the sake of phoning it in and go up. Oh, okay. We got to make a new record. Like we got to come up with something. Right. What do we do? Well, and avoid being in that uh, situation. And it's like, I previously said to you, if I, I told myself, if I ever got to that point, I, I, I would just walk. I, I never yeah. ever phone it in for what it is that I'm doing. Well, I really so, so one, one, it you just made me think of 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 two things that I kind of really hadn't ever uh, differentiated in my brain before. Um, mm -hmm. One, from what you just said, don't you then find all the people criticizing Tool for taking thirteen years to put an album out ridiculous? In some ways, I, I mean, in some ways, yes. Like, but then again, as that kind of came out, we found out that there was 
a lot of things behind the scenes that they didn't make public until their album was released, like how the band was going through a massive lawsuit. And, and, and yes, could they have released the album way earlier? Absolutely. And there is such a thing as being too much of a perfectionist. And I, I would agree with you on that. It's, you know, that can almost kill you in a lot of different ways. Yeah. I remember uh, watching a YouTube video of Ray Luzier, uh, the corn drummer, where he even talks about that, where he said, you know, I, there was a point in time where he said in my late 20s and early 30s, I got no gigs. You know, and I would stay in my practice room for six days a week, just practicing drums for six hours a day. And that was my problem. Like, I wasn't getting out there. I wasn't doing anything. Like, yeah. and, and, you know, nobody, you can't expect anybody to find you or see what you have if you just keep it locked away in a room. And in some ways, I do feel that Tool kind of did put themselves in that position a little bit. But, I think so. You know, now that they're kind of talking about, um, you know, they, they don't ever want to do that again. They don't want to put themselves in that situation again. Uh, which I think is 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 great. Well, and okay. So so did you? What did you think of Fear Inoculum? Uh, I in many ways I I I loved it. You know, and same. In some, in some ways, uh, I know it got a lot of flack. And but what I, I I actually don't give a fuck about what plebs have to say about yeah. Tool. I don't. Someone whose favorite song is Sober, or doesn't right. doesn't have a fuck to say about what tool writes okay go 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 listen to third eye and if you relate to that at all then talk to me about uh, the the kind of music tool writes you know what i'm saying so 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 as a as an actual tool fan your thoughts on the mu cuz cuz for me being a tool fan being a huge prog fan, understanding what the Adam Joneses and the Danny Carries and the Maynards uh, and are like separate hearing, <laughs> hearing Pussifer, hearing um, a, a perfect circle, all these other bands that Maynard's brain goes into hearing Adam Jones's side stuff, hearing Danny Carey's other, you know, collaborations. Yeah. I went, I appreciate the intricacy that they put into the music. I mean, it is no shit, some intricate parts. They have some incredible transitions musically that are complex. But they don't, yeah. but there's nothing that punches you in the face like a push it or like lateralists. Or, you know, eye for an eye or an eye for an eye. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's nothing in the new album that does that. And so, yeah. so I went, so, you know, my thought was, all right, they showed that musically they're still adept at writing. I Yeah. You know, and I think it's funny, the, the one, the only song that particularly kind of caught my eye in terms of what you're specifically getting at with like, you know, the 46 and 2 and the sober era and, and, and that type of stuff yeah. was, was, was Tempest. And mm -hmm. Tempest was kind of like their dive back into that old school kind of tool sound. But, but, but again, you know, I, I remember 
being like, and this was right when the new Slipknot album, when, when you get older, um, before I get into Slipknot, um, when you get older, you know, your tastes change and yeah. that's natural. Yeah. And I, as a musician and when you're uh, a composer, that's a very natural thing to have happen. And I think that if you do stay in that box of just like where it is that you're comfortable um, you know, in many ways you are limiting yourself. And I know I'm talking like a true prog head right now, but that was, you know, one of the many reasons of why I, I love that. Cause it's like, you know, it's like what we talked about with dream theater, they can do something kind of like Octavarium, which is sort of like very ballad and Coldplay esque with like a lot of their songs and keyboard melodies, but then dream theater can go ahead and turn around on the next you know, and, and previously uh, on the previous album cycle, Dream Theater can turn around and do something that's just balls to the wall, heavy metal, like train of thought. And, and, yeah. and I remember seeing something where it was on one of Corey Taylor's Instagram posts and uh, they talked about the, the, just the new record release and how well it was charting. And he had like a picture of all the stats of it. And I remember seeing this one comment specifically stuck out to me. And there was a guy who was like, he goes, man, you know, I really wish that you guys like would write another Iowa and Corey Taylor commented on it. And he was like, cool. You want to make me 25 years old again? And like have all of that angry, pissed off energy. Right. Like, I'm more than happy to give you one. It's, I, I, you know, it's I, I, bringing back to Maynard's original point. Like there has to be Gross. some kind of logical progression to what it is that you're doing. And it's like, if you're, if you're not healing from your art and if you're not doing something different, I don't know how beneficial your art really is. Right. And and that's healing healing is the the crucial word in that. Because yes. because people who aren't uh uh kind of you know you, you, I'm a musician or at least I like to consider myself a musician as much as the word encapsulates my overall drive. But I'm also an artist. I'm also a creator. I'm also any other kind of adjective, adverb you want to put into that box. I, I feel like all of those things. And, um, uh, you know, like you said, as you get older, your, your feelings change. And as I get older, as a more practiced musician and creator, I start recognizing in myself what I saw in the past happen to all of my favorite artists. I mean, all of them. There isn't one of them that their sound didn't change. B go back and be mad at Metallica in 1996 for Load. It's, yeah, and, and that's a difficult thing. I, I mean, if we're getting it on the Metallica debate, you know, if we're getting into that era like personally was load my cup of tea not really but i still respect them and even with the black album you know i still respect them for going out of their way and trying something different but like, like you said like you said earlier though you guys take it if you what load was for me was what i think you illustrated earlier was this band who had been put in this box all of a sudden had ideas that weren't in the box. And do you expect them to stay 25 or do you want <laughs> them to turn 30 and write new songs and feel away? And, 
and go through breakups and divorces and addiction and or or you know Metallica specific, but broaden the bubble. Go through anything and expect to stay the same. And so that was what Tool for me illustrated that okay, wait a minute, these guys took thirteen years to write a new album, and it came out, and it was exactly what mature guys would write from 13 years ago. And that's that was my final settling point is, oh, it, it, it's Tool 13 years later, and this is what they wanted to show. This is how they matured. What you're hearing is their collectiveness now. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would absolutely agree with you on that in terms of, you know, just where they were and what they were dealing with and kind of what experiences that they go through. And, you know, I just when I was... Uh, chatting a couple of weeks ago on, uh, uh, you know, the Dan Woods live show about yeah. this, where it's like, you know, these guys have a lot of different things in tool and they go and they experience life, whether it's playing in different bands or if it's Maynard making his wine and, and they do these things to, to have these experiences in order to create something that is very, um, very real and very palpable rather than being very manufactured and kind of rather than just you know you know being in a tour bus surrounded by decadence and you know writing a song about some fucked up lawsuit that you're in from your record label or you know another stereotypical song about whiskey and women and partying like how many of those exist in rock and roll you know it's like okay we're really gonna cliche again and um and, you know, one of my favorite tracks, particularly that stood out to me on this record was uh, uh, and even my girlfriend, who is not the biggest metal fan on the face of the planet. But she said that, like, in her words, not mine, that this was one of the most beautifully constructed pieces of music she ever listened to was uh, on the record was Descending. Yes. And, and me, too. That particularly for me was a massive standout because I love the way that it builds and like that middle section where it's like Maynard's vocals like gradually become more and more intense and then the drums hit and like everything kind of fires off and you're like holy shit yeah yeah what 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 descending did for me was put me in you know I'm 33 and so so I can only imagine these guys being you know my age 20 years ago Right. Writing the music they wrote 20 years ago. And, and I, I actually really spent time putting myself 20 years in the future and going, holy shit. And trying to listen to descending as a 50 year old and, and went, oh my gosh, this is a movement through life. This is this is actually taking the time and people said man they just wrote repetitive riffs and I yeah. went and I went no this riff subtly changes and it takes 4 minutes for it to happen and that's yes. and that's what life does later is moments of change take longer and longer to actually change and mm-hmm. We witnessed progression. You, 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 you start descending and by the end of it, you're not listening to the same song 
You are. Yeah. But you you're not feeling like you are. You've been taking <laughs> through a ride that a fifth only a fifty year old can portray. Yeah. Twenty five year old, thirty year old tool could never have written descending. Definitely, definitely not. And I would agree with you on that. Whereas, you know, their approach to writing is still very old school where, you know, you look at something like The Wall or Dark Side of the Moon or even Sgt. Pepper, where the whole concept is. And again, that whole idea of a concept album where there is an overarching story that's being told and every song is essentially diverging into its own yeah. separate theme without without diverging from the main theme rather than like the serializing of what we see with a lot of these newer bands that come out where it's like okay let's just write these three and a half minute songs that go intro verse chorus verse chorus bridge you know chorus end and and that, that was like to me what really appealed with a lot of that stuff is is like you know the the flow and the sequencing of all of that was what was made that music to me so special and you just don't really have a lot of people who want to put that kind of work into songwriting and I, and, I, and again I'm not saying that in order to make a good song it needs to be like a tool song and it should be 15 minutes long right is you know, you look at a great song uh, like Foreplay from Boston, like still like a good, great froggy yes. song. Yes. That, you know, that, that that still is, you know, and to me, the thing that makes any good song a really good song is its conclusion, like the, the satisfying conclusion to it. And, and sort of like what you were talking about with Descending is, yes, it's we're, we're going through this journey and it's and by the time you're, you know, a quarter through the song or halfway through the song or even three fourths through the song, it's a completely different song and it's but it's still sticking to that overarching theme of what it is and what makes that song so satisfying is when it hits that conclusion and you go, Wow, that is I just felt like I went on an adventure. And that to me was is what made even like I was telling you earlier, the earlier Metallica stuff from Master of Puppets and Injustice for All so satisfying was every song was a journey like where they would go and have these breaks in the middle and then gradually build things back up again and Dude, just, just yeah remarkable. yeah i still remember being a young child well not yet you know i would young child to me is like 15 years old right i'm still thinking <laughs> of me then and and going <laughs> listening to blackened and it starts out and it's just and the guitars slowly build up into this and you get you get the whole fucking thing blocking is the end and then it's like you know that song did that that was the illustration but then i get older and my bands my references for those go from metallica in six minutes to yes for me my favorite uh conceptual band is yes Oh God, love yes, love uh, yes. I mean, Chris Squire, his voice you cannot deny. Bill yeah. Bruford when he drummed for him. Um, I mean, man, you had, you had the at the time the epitome of progressiveness. I'm mean, in in music. What music was going through? You, I mean, you had them and Emerson, Emerson Lake, and Palmer. Like they yeah. were really just 
people want to want to want to you know push up Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin as these kind of like early prog bands, which they were, but yeah, they weren't. They were not a King Crimson. They were not Yes. They were not Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. You know, I mean, you listen to Tarkus by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and you go, oh, this is where Octavarian came from. This Sure. You know, you listen to uh, Brain Salad Surgery. That album by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer is fantastic. Yeah, or, or even like getting into some old, like even the kind of like what that era, what you're talking about for even Octavarium and, you know, proggy stuff that's super out there, even like like Frankenstein from Edgar Winter, you know, uh, Dude, like, yes, they're just like Edgar Winter know, Group you know, is fucking fantastic. The other one, the other one <laughs> is um, 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 Funkadelic. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Maggot Brain. I, I worshipped that them in college oh god love them yeah parliament funkadelic is one of those bands that really that is kind of like the mike portnoy of drumming which he took all of the rudiments of technical playing and jumping times and doing everything and then added this underlying just soulful funky groove to all of it and you no one it it the casual listener of Parliament Funkadelic would never call them a prog band, and that's the only way I can describe them. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree, you know, and, and even getting back to your point with Yes, very cool story. I saw this old old interview with Jordan Rudis this is back in like 2003, 2002. They were on the Six Degrees of Interturbulence tour. And they talked about, you know, how he was like, you know, this massive child prodigy and how he like got to Juilliard at a super young age and graduated and they you know, were just kind of talking him up in the interview and said, you know, what does it feel like to be like the greatest keyboardist alive? And the words that came out of his mouth, he was like, he shook his head and goes, as long as Rick Wakeman walks the earth, yeah. I will never take that title for myself. Yep. I will never, I can still remember <sighs> the, like to, to this day, the keyboard solo in roundabout is like, one of the most amazing things I've ever heard, like in all genres of music. Yeah. And you're like, holy shit. Like the amount of time that he had to practice to have those chops to pull that off. You listen is- to, you listen to roundabout, you listen to South side of the sky, you listen to closer to the edge and you listen to fragile and those four songs alone. Oh, and topographic views of the earth. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You listen you to, you listen to those and you go, Oh, this is what keyboarding is. That yeah. Rick Wakeman, I mean rest rest in peace is was I mean I mean yeah, you 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 said exactly right. Rudis had it right. He was the greatest. He innovated every keyboardist from then on. There was yeah. there was a dividing line at Rick Wakeman. You know, the only other one was uh Keith Emerson. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree and even uh you know, uh Trent Reznor talks about it in detail too, where he said like, you know, yes. And rush were the two bands that kind of made keyboards cool and rock because like before, like keyboards were like never really kind of cool and rock music and everybody would sort of, um, you know, look down on them and think that they were kind of lame and, yeah. and just not really like that interesting. But Rick Wakeman and, you know, Getty Lee were like the two who kind of made keyboards in rock and roll, uh, 
an acceptable Do, thing. You know? Eddie Van Halen never would have written Jump on a Keyboard if it wasn't for Rick Wakeman, Keith Emerson, or Geddy Lee. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you know? That, that's where Jump came from. And people listen to that and still think it's a guitar to this day. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's kind of like uh, uh, even, uh, what is it, Bill Ward from Sabbath, he even says, like, they're like, what's it like being, you know, the godfather of heavy metal drumming? And he's like, I, I, I didn't make any of it. Like, he's like, I, if Ginger Baker never existed, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have written any of this stuff. He was the beginning of everything. Like, a lot of those, you know, guitar hero type, like, rock songs from, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival and, you know, just... Uh, you know, all of that type of, all of that 70s rock era drumming, yeah. you know, G Ginger invented all of that. Because even back then, you know, if you even looked at the Beatles. The R Ringo. Ringo. Yeah, Ringo. They, they were still, even in like the late 60s, early 70s, they were still kind of playing a lot of those shuffle sort of pop. <laughs> Exactly, and and you had Ginger who came in, who was like, boom, bah, boom four on the floor, four on yeah, the floor. Yeah. He he made that, and he coined that as his own thing, and he just didn't, you know. I mean, of course, if you if he were still alive, if you interviewed him to this day, he'll he he said it to the day he died. I'm 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 not a, I'm not a bloody rock drummer. I'm a fucking jazz drummer. Like I'm you know, and he'll always. That's a great accent. And he'll always say that because he always, you know, his thing was is like, you know, he's like the general public are so dumb that they couldn't tell the difference. But he's like, if you listen to everything I did, it, it wasn't a shuffle, but it was a variation of a shuffle. Yeah. That's all That's all I did when yeah. I made this. It was all based around that shuffle triplet, but I just kind of moved some notes around in order to make it what it was. And, yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, for me, I try to inspire myself to be somewhere between kind of like a tool and a Frank Zappa. I want yeah. to, I, I want to have musicians around me that are better than me. I E Frank Zappa with no boundary on what I want to write yet create something that through all of the change sounds enough similar that you you identify it as one entire band i.e. tool or metallica you hear you hear james's distortion and you know it's a metallica song you hear a tool you you know it's a tool song you <laughs> cannot identify most frank zappa songs from other frank zappa songs unless you hear his voice yet yeah yet he put out 60 albums in 13 years. It's pretty wild. You know, and so you know, Zappa is one of my favorite prog guys of all time. He, sure. Oh, you yeah. know, as, as a guitar player, as an innov innovator, people called, you know, this might ruffle some feathers and I, I'm sorry to stomp on you, but if you want to talk about innovators of guitar sound, I put Zappa over Hendrix. Yeah, I mean, him, to me, Hendrix, I think, was the archetype of, to me, I, I view Hendrix as what we consider contemporary rock. I, I think him, uh, Muddy Waters. For like the Counting Crows. 
yeah, did like him, Muddy Waters, and even uh, uh, you know, even like like those two to me are the main Clapton. Yeah, you know, and, and it's in some ways I would say so. They're the main archetype of what contemporary rock music really is. I would I don't consider them the founders because to me, no. the, I always view the founders of rock to be Otis you know, Redding. You know, El, Otis Redding, Elvis, and uh, R.I.P. And even uh, if he's not on a beach in Puerto Rico somewhere, and yeah. um, and then uh, uh, Little Richard, rest in peace. Yep. You know, the, the three of them. I, I always viewed as like the main inventors of the genre. Sure. But I, I think in terms of the contemporary, like what we consider contemporary rock music to me, it was Hendrix and, and Muddy Waters in a lot of different ways. But I, I, I agree with you in terms of Zappa. I think he just, he kind of had what Hendrix did, but he was like, okay, Hendrix would do this, but what would happen? Like how far would he take it if he were still like how far should I take this? Well, isn't that and, what isn't that what Yes did? Isn't that what Dream Theater did on Yes's and Russ's shoulders? Isn't that what you know, I mean, you listen to some some modern bands today. Are have you ever heard of Caligula's horse? You a fan of those yeah. guys? I'm not familiar with them. All right, so hey, modern Prague, and this is as I mean, in fact, they just released an album in quarantine. So so Caligula's Horse is one of these bands that I listen to that takes kind of, I mean, you know who Haken is, right? Yeah. Oh, love Haken. Yeah. Love yeah. What What did you, th have you heard their two new kind of quarantine -y releases, Invasion and Vector, or not Vector, I mean, Invasion and, have you heard them? I, I heard Invasion. Yeah. Invasion I really, really liked. Um, you know, I, I think that, that their new songs uh, the, in quarantine right now, the main uh, records that are standing out to me or bands that are standing out to me is uh, the, the uh, Invasion Song by Haken. I really like uh, Heaven Shall Burn's new record is super heavy and really good. Okay. Uh, and then uh, the even the, the new Trivium record, I, 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 I absolutely adore. Dude, so, Trivium's new album is fantastic. It's great. It's great. And even if we want to talk about, I know that they don't tag themselves as prog, but they definitely they have a lot of, they have a lot of progress. I would say that they have a lot of progressive tendencies. Well, Matt, um, Matt Heafy is a subscribed Petrucci. I mean, he tells every, I mean, he, you know, he's a Petrucci disciple. He didn't learn directly from him, but he's of that niche, that ilk, you know, he. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then, uh, their 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 stuff has been really really great, uh, and I and even though that they released the whole record, which they kind of got a lot, which I thought was weird, they got flack for that. But, Never, yeah, the fact that know, the fact they didn't put out a single first and just went all album hurt feelings. You know, and in, and in some ways, I I actually do kind of like and respect and understand the mindset because I think to them with all of this COVID quarantine nonsense they were probably saying to themselves well you know everybody's at home right now you know this is probably the best time for everybody to consume music let's just let the record go that's and, yep you know and i i gotta say if i were in that position um that being a, like a trivium level of success i probably would have done this 
same thing. Agreed. Well, yeah. Yeah. Trivium's Trivium is one of my favorite kind of mix genre blending of prog and hard rock metal. You know, um, they, I mean, they toured with Dream Theater for a long time. They toured with uh, Symphony X for a long time. Um, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I don't know how people don't classify Trivium as a prog band. In fact, I often, Trivium falls into kind of that Tool and Metallica group where I go, why do they get so much hate for their intermediate albums of growth? Like, they put, you know, Shogun is arg- amazing. Um, yeah. Um, but their albums before it when he when when Matt was really screaming obvious i mean that the music was fucking intense man like yeah early trivium's great but then they grew they did they did the uh, the snow song or the snow album they you know um they're changing they're one of those albums that there's one of those bands you know, it's like Symphony X getting flack for Paradise Lost. Like, it the, bands change; they move through. You know, not every band is going to continue writing their greatest hits for every album. Right, you know, because it's like if you do, then you just get creatively just so burnt out. Nickelback. On on that, but I I, I gotta say, and people people will may hate me for this, but that record they put out a few years ago with the feed the machine or whatever like i put that on and i was super impressed it dude it sounded like a woven war record yeah i was like yeah this this is you know just this is crazy and i like the fact that they kind of took that step into a little bit of a heavier kind of um a heavier kind of thing and, and the thing with them is it's like look Everybody likes to make fun of those guys. Everybody loves to rip on those guys. And, you know, me being a prog guy, like, obviously it, it wouldn't hurt to say that that particular type of rock is not necessarily my cup of tea. Like, I don't sure. listen to that type, regu- that type of music regularly. However, there is somebody I know who does know them very closely and, and has known them very closely. And, uh, you know, so uh, this may sound very biased, but uh, in my opinion, I I think he has a very valid argument. Now, growing in their scene in Canada, those guys were so fucking professional at every gig they ever played at. I believe it. But when they played at bars in Canada, they were never late to a load in. They didn't, you know, after a show, they didn't run up a bar tab until four o'clock in the morning and go, oh, we can't pay this and skip town. Yeah. They uh, would, yeah. You know, you know, they would they would never play past their set time. They would uh, they would get they would break down their set very quickly. They were very helpful in letting uh, helping other bands load their equipment on stages. They were a very fully functioning corporation of a band like they knew what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it and they were just a well-oiled machine for their type of success now again am i coming on and saying that i'm a fan and i own every nickelback album and will i buy every nickelback album that type of 
rock is not what I regularly throw on in my car. Like I don't listen oh, to yeah. that regularly, but the respect that I have for them is, is profound in, in many ways. In well, many, many ways. well here, even, even for me, um, you know, once I kind of really actually got into the music scene, uh, in the lower 48, which people might not understand from an outside view is far more contiguous than you would think the States are connected together. Um, uh, the music scene is very kind of inclusive and doesn't matter how many states are between you. Um, and the outside pleb view of Nickelback is far different than the musician view of Nickelback. Be, yeah. Being a touring, playing, gigging musician, you understand the game that Nickelback played that a human who doesn't work in this business will never get. Um, for, for that, I can't fault Nickelback at all. Um, mm -hmm. They're undoubtedly professionals. What I fault them for is what I fault every other band mostly for. Um, even Rush included in this is starting with an idea and caring about that idea and ending up writing albums for money. Hmm. Yes. Yes. That, that is the fault. Now rush corrected that, but they had an out roll. The bones is one. I, there are songs on roll. The bones that I love. Rush is my favorite band of all time. Um, mm -hmm. I, there's not an album. I don't hate, but I recognize they had a couple, like you said earlier, they wrote songs that led into albums for the specific purpose of the album because the, so the songs were written to support other songs. You know, it happens. It's, it's the music business. You fall into that groove. What I, I, the thing that, you know, when, when snakes and ladders, came out with when rush came out with snakes and ladders you went oh they found themselves again yeah you know in in, in some ways or snakes I, and arrows i mean not snakes and ladders snakes and arrows um, yeah in, in in some ways i i would definitely say so i i think to me their their major turning point was in 96 with test for echo because that was the oh, first okay record that they kind of did for me personally, because uh, that was the first record that they did with Peter Collins as their producer. And Peter Collins was basically, he kind of wanted to take them back to a power trio. Cause when he met with them, he said to me, like, look guys, it's really sad to me that one of the most biggest famous power trios of all time, because you know, as I do, in the late 80s and even in the early 90s, they wrote like a lot of almost electronic type of pop songs. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, well, and, the, the and, amount, if you listen, there, there's like three albums in a row where the majority of the songs are keyboard and Getty isn't even playing bass in them. Yeah. And he's pretty much singing and, and, and Neil is kind of just doing like a four on the floor. And like the, the drumming yeah. isn't really all that progressive. 
And even Alex is barely doing anything. Well, he's doing a couple of bends on the guitar. You know, Neil Neil also was dealing with loss in this time, but true. But true. it but it it doesn't account for the lack of kind of profundity that either Alex or Getty would push forward. Um, you true. know, it, you didn't. It was well into the two thousands. Until Rush had a song that didn't have keyboard in it. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and even even in Test for Echo, there like even when Peter Collins came on, there were still some songs that had keyboards. But his idea was, you know, I think it's sad that one of the biggest power trios of all time has become an electronic band. Yeah, and. Said, I want my focus is, is I want to make you guys a power trio again, but we just kind of need to find whatever the contemporary uh, vision of what a power trio is and get you guys back to that. And that's why, to me, Driven is one of my, and which is the, the song on Pesperecco, Driven is still to this day one of my favorite Rush songs of all time. How they do that, like that intro riff, which is a variance of like eights and sevens. Yeah. On itself, where they are dead and a 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 dead and you know, they're a very, well, again, like I said, they're a very well-oiled machine. They're yeah. very focused. They know what it is that they want to do. And, and it's like what you talk about with but, them writing music in terms of the monetary game. You know, I, I to me, it's, again, I'm not denying any of that. I disagree. Oh, sure, it. sure. You know, it's, I, I just. Well, it's funny. It's funny. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. It, it, no, you're, you're I just, good. I just haven't since Nickelback's first album. Yeah, which is undeniable. I haven't heard them try to describe themselves in music since that point. Yeah, well, but that's kind of like, and to me, the 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 point I was uh, the point I was getting at is, is like when you make hundreds of millions of dollars and. Um, you know, you like you already won. You won. You know what I mean? Well, and, and I think it's just every time somebody puts a thing on them to make a uh, a new record, and you've already won at the game, it's kind right. of in a position where you go, "What the fuck do we do? Like, what do we do now?" Well, okay, so so let me ask you this then: You've already said. If you get to that point, you're done. I would. Yes. Right. I would walk. So that's where my hypocrisy lies is I get it from the point if you want to just make money, what else do you do? Mm-hmm. But you and me both would say if if it came down to I have to write an album of songs I don't care about for the money, not because they feel good songs, I'm done. And yeah. What I see in Nickelback and where I think that a lot of the jokes fall short, which us as actual, 
well, not not that they're not a working musician. I don't want to I don't I don't want to straw man them into being or or you know I don't I don't want to create a um a no true Scotsman fallacy with mm-hmm. them. But they are they are real working musicians. They just quit showing the drive that they showed in their first album. In fact, the in my eyes, it was so strong they killed Theory of a Dead Man too. Hmm. Yeah. It's, you, know? you know. Yeah. Yeah. In, in many ways. In 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 many ways. Yes. Because it's you have like the the drive that they had, and then when you get that that kind of complacency, in a sense, yes. is very. Um, you know, it, it can be very advantageous to everybody in your band and everybody kind of in your camp, whether it's your producers and whatnot. Well, imagine, imagine you're 21 years old. You guys are sitting in a garage writing music and you come up with a brilliant album, which is what Nickelback did. They were a bunch of young kids from Canada who worked hard, who loved like fucking love music. They're they're prog fans. They're rush fans. They're metal fans. They do covers of other bands better than some of their own songs. Like like Nickelback is no joke. But yeah, you're 21 year olds. You write a first album, and all of a sudden you're said, "Here's a hundred million dollars. Write three more albums that sound the same." Right. Do you go? okay, a hundred million dollars or, Hey man, I'm 21 at 24. I don't know what I'm going to think is cool. Like I, you know, for me, for, I would, I've never been offered that, but I would like to think that we would all go, Hey man, this one song off this one album is cool, but like you said earlier, when a band comes in for an album s- session, when that when they're in where in when, when they're in the time of creating and publishing and writing a new album, they write thirty to forty songs. Twelve or thirteen get picked. Yes. Do you ever see yourself saying, "Hey, one of those twelve is good for the next three albums"? Or guys, we have twenty-eight other songs that also change that are good why not funk you know i just net i don't get the musicianship decision to to make that complacency mindset other than money and if it's money then the music was never the real goal Sure, sure. It, well, I, I will. I'll tell you a story. Please, please. Um, about those guys that, um, and and this was actually one of our, one of your and I's uh, favorite prog artists of all time was the one who initially told this was Devin Townsend who. Oh told this. yes. And so Devin was kind of in a weird place. And he just kind of went. This back when the you know the most recent Nickelback record, which was like like two or three years ago, came out, and which I I liked, and and it was you know very much like a woven war type of type of thing. And Devin tweeted out, uh, "I I like 
the new Nickelback album. And then he's like, dude, like, did the storm that ensued after that because I said that was crazy. And he said, you know, him and, and, and Nickelback, they were both from Vancouver, like both yep. West Coast Canada boys. And I guess through some mutual friends, Chad found Devin's number. And Chad texted him and he was like, hey, man, uh, you know, thanks for uh, not talking shit about me. And Devin immediately was like, texted him back. He's like, just to be clear, I, I have for sure. That's 100%. <laughs> you know, that's 100% happened. I've totally talked shit on your fan. But, um, but they, they met with each other because I guess at the time, Devin's career wasn't really doing all that well. And he was just in his mind. And he just said, you know what? Fuck it, man. Like, what, what if I just make a pop record? Like, what if I just fucking yeah. make a pop record? And, um, you know, and he met with Chad and the dude's a fucking genius. And was oh, yeah. really talking about, he was like, no, man. And Chad was like, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to keep making unapologetic, weird prog music because that's what you do. You're Devin Townsend and really kind of inspired him in a lot of ways and showed and he showed him, I, I guess this stuff still hasn't exactly been released yet, but. And even showed Devin a lot of the the newer stuff that they're working on, and, and he was super stoked about it. Was super stoked about it, and was really into it, and really liked it. And and he looked at Devin and was like, he's like, dude, people fucking hate me, man. Yeah, like people fucking hate me. And I really like, you know, I I really dig like what it is that we're trying to do, and well, and people just fucking hate my guts. And, you know what's and, you know what's sad. And yeah. some something that I pride myself on never doing um is recognizing that the musicians aren't the band. Yes, I so, I would agree with that in in more than any other statement because it's you know you have like, I am can, I am a legit I am a legit Chad Kroger fan. Yeah. I've heard him do solo shit. I've heard him do other shit. I've heard him jump in jams with other musicians that aren't Nickelback. Like I, there there's no there's no fault with any musician in Nickelback. The right. the entity that is Nickelback, I have an issue with. The same as the entity that is Metallica, I think charged too much for tickets. Sure. Well, it, it, it kind of depends. It's like, you know, and the old saying is every man has his price, right? Like, yeah. and, and if, if we, you know, uh, go backwards a little bit, and we, we talk about another band. So personally, one of my favorite bands growing up that I'm not really that much of a fan of anymore is Disturbed. Like personally with Disturbed, I, I personally, I'm not, and this is my, per and for everybody listening, this is my personal opinion. Yep. This is completely sure. objective. Sure. I don't want to, to get you know uh, upset about this i personally am not a fan of what the industry has done to that band i don't no. like what they've done with that band and how they have changed the sound and how they have like really just kind of made them you know a two-pump chump and many things so where it's like okay like here's a hit here's another hit sing it this way play it this way because here's another hit but you know you you that's the thing that you have to every musician has that crossroads where it's like you keep your artistic integrity and not necessarily you can be lucrative, but the probability can be maybe be a little less. Yeah. Or you take the cash cow route 
uh, route like Disturbed did. Because it's like, I got to say, the past few records of Disturbed, ever ever since... 10,000 days. Yeah. To me, that and and Indestructible, I liked. Indestructible was the last record I really liked by that band. And yeah, you know, but but it had some some good songs on it. You know what I mean? Like, it it had some good songs. Yeah. And to me, I... um, and 10,000 Days is amazing. I can listen to that whole record from yeah. start to finish and not, and, and, and not skip a song. Well, but, it's it's because, to me, it's because they wrote the album wanting to put out an album, not wanting to fill an album with a couple singles. Y- yes, yes, and not put a bunch of fluff behind those singles. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and to me... That's what's really difficult because I, I won't name their names, but I still know a ton of people who will go to, and this is what I mean, where it's like every man has his price and it depends on what decision you want to make as a musician because I still know a ton of people who will go to every Disturbed concert. They will buy every Disturbed t-shirt. They will buy every Disturbed record. They will watch and download it and pay for every Disturbed YouTube video or D. And they will go out of their way and just consume and consume and consume and consume and consume. And and, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, I don't know. Because, again, it's like what you talked about. I've never been tempted with $100 million in order to make music. Right. But it, it's a very – that crossroads in making that decision, it's a difficult decision. You know, if you're, you know, a broke musician who's six months late on his – you know, electric bill and a two months late on his rent and some million dollar con, uh, hundred million dollar contract. It's like, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? What are you going to pick? And I, I think that uh, again, I'm not going to say what I would do because I, I've never, I, I don't, get, I'm not qualified to push those rocks around. Of course, I'm not qualified to make any of these career decisions for any of these musicians like Nickelback and Disturb. I'm Damn not right. Gonna, like, I'm not going to pretend like I know what it is that they should and shouldn't do because I've never been tempted with that amount of money or that amount of success. But I believe that, you know, again, when you have those two factors, it's almost it's very individual, individually based and very band based. I mean, some bands well, are OK doing that and they're okay with being a part of the system and they're okay with going into that world but uh you know again with my personality i'd like to think that i wouldn't do that but i don't know well again are you you know you you hit it you hit the nail on the head bro are are you a david draymond fan or are you a disturbed fan because if you're a david fan and you recognize the talent in the singer, and you're going to hear this one dude sing, who's phenomenal. There's no argument. David Draymond isn't a a, a remarkably studied progressive singer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You, you know, and do you want to jump on the bad wagon of the band wagon of the artists? lost yet no problem or do you want to jump on the bandwagon of the band's publicity you know um gotcha. i am so i am so sorry that that happened i don't know i 
the, my phone just like completely freaked out for a second. <laughs> no, 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 no problem, dude. Um, no, what I was just saying is, you know, are you a, an individual members fan? Do you follow David Draymond or the bass player, or the guitar player, or are you a fan of the publicity of the band? And you just like what a company that isn't the band puts in your face and you love disturbed yet you can't name the band members. You know, you talked about it being a young kid, something that came with buying cassette tapes or buying CDs. You read the jackets of the cases. You yeah. knew, you knew the lyrics to the songs you knew the members, you knew who they thanked, you knew who produced it, you knew who directed it, you knew you knew everything. You knew you you and and when you listened to the album, all you did was read the inner folds to figure out as much as you could about the band. And so I I I think that's lost now with digital with streaming Mm-hmm. Everything yeah. you good? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I think I think my internet's just acting weird. It it happened, dude. I tell you, internet <laughs> is one of these things that I wish I understood more, so I could maybe try and give fixes. Like like, hey, maybe try to turn up the gain or uh, <laughs> or 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 turn down the lows because the mids are interfering. Like if 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 if. Yeah. If if that was the knowledge with how internet worked, you know, maybe we might go there. Um, well, hey, okay, we've talked about, we've really delved deep into music. Are you good for time for a little bit more? Yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Okay, I'm gonna jump to a commercial real fast, and then I will be right back. Sure. Hey. Welcome back to Falco's 90-Minute Meditation Hour. I'm your astrally projected inner truth self and part-time janitor, Falco. All right, my astral friends, start by closing your eyes. Sit on your root chakras and let's meditate. We're all like tiny rocks in space. Yeah, like asteroids. (laughs) Fun game. But in astral energy planes. But watch out. There's negative quantum energy parasites, and they are like the most dangerous astral energies in the entire energy plane. If one tries to attack you astrally, symptoms are usually either a light or a heavy head, uh, headaches or belly aches, blurry vision, itchy feet, or strange thoughts. To correct your energy polarity flow, quantumly orient your crown, root, and heart chakras whilst gazing your third eye toward the sacred energy cluster. Conjunct Jupiter and Uranus and cast out the negative planar energy bacteria until the brain butter is clear and no longer hazy. Then, the most important step. Oh, that looks like that's the end of the show. Wow, I'm good at this. Until next time, Space Invaders, friends. 
And we're back. Okay. I love the power of editing. Um, <laughs> so, okay, let's get back to this now. Um, we talked, I mean, for anybody who's a big music fan and audiophile, they probably really loved the last hour of conversation because we went deep into music and what we think about. So what I want to do is kind of transition now. Okay, so you're a cup, you're a year-ish out of high school. Um, you moved to California. Have, are are you moving to California to be in a band or just try to get in the music scene? You've heard of uh, Anaheim, you've heard of L.A., you've heard of San Diego and the music scene. Are what what is your plan for moving? My my plan was um. Every band I was in when I was a kid and when I was in high school and even the one year that I went to college in Connecticut, I was the only person who really wanted to make it a profession. That was like I, I was the only person with that type of mindset. And gotcha. the, 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 after the band, the, the, the prog metal band I left, I formed a, a new band. Uh, and that was in my senior year of high school and went into my freshman year of college. We were a band called Vicious Winter, and we basically emulated a lot of uh, the death clock metalocalypse music, uh, a lot cool. of uh, Dimmu Borgir, where it was like it was heavy. Again, you know, like we were talking about earlier, it was heavy, but had a ton of progressive tendencies. Like it was, yeah. it was very much metal, not <laughs> But we we would take a lot of uh, you know mood changes and and uh, tempo changes, song changes, like you know all of these different aspects that are kind of encompassed in Prague. And, in Prague, but we put them in a very metal type of setting, and cool. even uh, a lot of stuff like Into Eternity. Uh, you know, we were very into um, the that, that band in particular. We were all massive fans of Into Eternity, and we were massive fans of Mastodon. Um, so it was a culmination of those two bands. And, I love Mastodon. Uh, oh God, Ma- Mastodon continually blows my mind. Like Troy, just, Troy is one of the my t- Troy is sits in my fucking top range of studs, man. Yeah. Oh, t- totally, totally. And um, and, and he's and, and even uh, Brom Daler is just like oh God when it comes to drumming, he's just amazing in so many different ways. Braun. Braun and Brent are kind of that duo of Adam Jones and, um, oh God, my mind just skipped me from tool. Like it, 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 you know, it, it is, it is that guitar drum combo Macedon and tool both have that. Yes. Yes. I, I, I would absolutely agree. And we, you know, uh, uh, we just, again, for young kid type of tendencies, fell apart. What was uh, the name of the band? Uh, we were called Vicious Winter. Very oh, uh, Vicious black, Winter. Yeah, very, very, uh, like, deathened black metal type of... Uh, Norwegian. The type, type of a name, yeah, totally. And uh, then, <clears throat> so that fell apart, and that was kind of like, the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I was basically like, fuck this. 
And my my best friend at the time, who's also his name was John, played guitar in the band with me. And I had because I had really liked you know coming out to California so much and uh, all of the music that was out there and was still here. I, I loved all of it, and I wanted to just relocate everything to out here because I said you know where where are like the meccas. Pro musicians. If you really look at it, it's Atlanta, it's Nashville, Tennessee, yep, and it's LA. Like those yeah. are like the three main meccas of those industries. And I, I didn't really want to live in LA. I thought LA was like way too overcrowded. So I was like, yeah, San Diego's close enough. Um, and even and even at the time, like San Diego still had a pretty good scene. I mean, we had we had a lot of band, a lot of great bands that made it professionally out of San Diego. Oh shit. Yeah. You know, and we, I, I kind of asked him and said like, cause he was the one that I sort of formed like a really close bond with and in the band. And I was like, come, come with me. Like, let's, let's go, let's leave. Like, like, let's just pick everything back up. Let's start out there. Let's find people who are serious and really want to do this as a profession. And, you know, reasonably so he said no and I don't blame him because again there's no guarantees in anything that we do in, in this industry which Fuck I'm name. you know well of and so I was just kind of undeterred and basically said to myself I mean I was heartbroken in many ways I was very heartbroken like he was my best friend and um, you know he kind of told me no and sort of shut me down but I wanted to pick everything back up and just go go for it anyway I auditioned I came out to San Diego, I auditioned for every band I could think of, like every 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 band, every band. It didn't matter who it was. It didn't matter what type of metal it was. It didn't matter what type of rock it was. And I auditioned for everybody. Good for and you, dude. Some, some people, some people took to it. Some people didn't. Some people thought I was, you know, I, I was at the time I was only twenty years old, and you know, some people took to it. Oh some shit! People, okay, wait, wait. Yeah. So you moved, you moved to L.A. at twenty. San, San Diego. Or San Diego. LA. Yeah, San Diego, not LA. Sorry. I, I, I totally had that in my head. You moved to, Cal- I was thinking California, and for some reason, LA was just kind of the, the next step. Um, so you, you moved at 20 years old and went, I'm going to be in any band I can fucking get in. Holy shit! Okay, so for for you to understand, j- just really quick, where I came from, um, at twenty years old, I was just getting out of college. I I had never played bass a day in my life. I had played guitar for three years, maybe at twenty. And I was, I was determined to be a mechanic. I even at 20 years old for me, I had no idea I was going to become a musician for the rest of my life. I had no idea. That's awesome. And, and so it is crazy for me to think about a kid. Like it's crazy to think about me being from a small town like you to, to get out to, to, to basically be two years, a year and a half out of high school and go, you know what? I'm going to devote everything to doing this musician thing. 
That's yeah, dude. Good for you, man. That's fucking insane. It was it was pretty. Uh, let me put it this way: my my mother was horrified. <laughs> That's the okay. best description I think I I, I I can think of. Okay, so um, let me ask you. Okay, Kate, you yeah. said that. My mother was horrified that I moved to Arizona to become a mechanic. So, what were were you were you a mama's boy? Were, were I I don't want to say that pejoratively because I fucking was. So, were you that guy? Did you stay at home? Were you the kid who really enjoyed like mom being around and you had your things, you had music, you had video games, you had being a kid but mom was really important. Not necessarily. The, okay. The reason why I bring up my mother was because, and, and even my, my, my dad in, in many ways. Um, so convincing my parents. So the, the college that I went to for uh, two semesters, I went to Western Connecticut State University. All right. What Western Connecticut State University had uh, an amazing jazz music program. And it rivaled that of Berkeley, Massachusetts. So in terms of East Coast music schools, you had Juilliard, which was considered number one, but Juilliard wasn't really jazz related. Juilliard was classical, you know, yep. predominantly. You had uh, Berkeley and Mass, which was ha- had a good classical program, but was mainly, and still to this day, is mainly known for its jazz program. Right. And school right underneath that was was Westcon, which is what we call Western Connecticut State University. So getting into – I knew I couldn't get into Juilliard because it's a private school and it was just impossible. Berkeley wanted an obscene amount of money to be able to sure. be included in there. Um, you know, we're talking like – Jesus, I think for like uh, a fall, a fall and spring semester at the time, and this, and this is keep in mind, I don't even know what it is now. This is like we're talking 2000, 2010 prices. Yeah, uh, it, it was like fifty four thousand dollars a year, uh, a full year, like just something. Yeah, it was it it was ridiculously high, and so I that's what makes me think I don't even want to know what it is now uh, in terms of the pricing. But Westcon had a great jazz program that was rivaling Berkeley. Uh, the school was considerably cheaper. I figured I'd lived in Connecticut. I'd get in-state tuition price. You know, it, it couldn't be that bad. So signed up. I went to Westcon. So in order to get into the music program and to be indoctrinated into that, you had to do an audition. Went in, did the audition, and I I blew it like i did terrible oh no literally like i caved uh they gave me a bunch of stuff to sight read i couldn't do it because i there was just so much pressure then they wanted me to get behind a kit do just like a jazz shuffle swing like my hands and my feet just froze because because in my mind and, and they wanted it all straight to a metronome they didn't want feel to it they didn't want you to improvise they wanted you to do a jazz shuffle swing to a yeah. metronome yeah actually I- improvising was part of the audition believe it or not it oh was really like, it, it was it was the, the the there was three components of it you had to sight read uh, a multitude of different songs then you sure. had 
you had to swing a couple of different songs where they would play a few tunes they actually wanted you to audition to. And then there were uh, a few tunes that they would deliberately bring in that you didn't know that they expected you to improvise and do a lot of uh, training fours and whatnot, which I know I know you're a jazz guy, so you, yeah. so you know what And so for the people who don't know, training fours is a, is a term in jazz where every four measures of music, you have one instrument that basically goes out of its way and solos for four measures. Yes. So an example, if you're trading fours with a drummer and a guitar player, every four measures you'll have a guitar player solo, and then four measures after that you'll have a drummer solo, and four measures after that you'll have a bass player so, solo, or however many people are encompassing them. In the band. And so and so it's 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 depending on the tempo of the song, it's the the listener would hear just a run of solos looking like it was pre-orchestrated for guitarist, drummer, vocalist, bassist, saxophone, trumpet, and, and it's just a roll of every four beats, you have a four-beat solo. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Right. That's, that, that's correct. And, yep. and we would do that. And the, the training fours, which is essentially nothing but improvisation, that was the, the part I, I did okay at, but the other two-thirds I didn't get. Then about a month later, I got the letter saying that I didn't get into the music program that I would have to, if I wanted to study music, I would have to go into secondary ed, which essentially was, they said, you're not good enough to be a performance major. Oh. If you want to major in music, you have to be, uh, you have to be an educator. And of you course. Need to, you need to take classes in order to be an educator. And it was that, that failure was what made me, come out to California and audition for everybody and prove everybody. Oh, so Uh, you actually had, okay. Um, part of my podcast is not, not just talking to musicians, but it's also talking about the mindset that creates one. So let me ask you this. Knowing now that, um, kind of a level of defeat was the impetus for your uh, rebirth, uh, moving out and kind of rejoining, uh, restarting you in a place that didn't know you, right? Um, yes. Um, as a kid before that, were, did you... Did you have an innate sense of self-worth or were you kind of... Uh, a kid who thought that he was probably not as cool as everyone else. It, it, it would be be the second. I I mean, a, being a kid, I was a very sensitive kid, and I think that that naturally is a characteristic of a lot of artists, you know, yeah. and music in general. Like, we're, and and we're we're very we are, and as much as people who you know these guys who play rock and metal and beat their chests and be all masculine and try to be like these super tough guys. Artists, I think, are some of the most sensitive people on the planet. Regardless of outside of music, even if we go into the theater, like actors and and, and the arts and movies, you know, we're very sensitive, I think, to our surroundings. I think we're very sensitive 
with the people we come in contact with, and we were very good at, at reading the people we come in contact with, and the environment and, and the atmosphere of all of that. And that was that, and that was me, you know. And when I was in high school, it was I remember when I when I got into high school, I, I still was a music fan. You know, I, I, I my freshman year of high school, I was fourteen, and I like I told you, I started playing drums when I was thirteen. So I was like. Right. A final year in middle school was really when I picked up drumsticks. My that year, I auditioned for band, and I didn't. I, I and for high school band, and I, I didn't get in. Oh, huh. bro! And, yeah, I had, I had almost the same instance in high school, but it was for choir, and I was told. You're, I was told by the choir teacher, you're just not a good enough singer. Yeah, yeah, and it's it, and and when you're a kid and, and music and everything, you that's a painful thing to have happen. And, and and for me, we lost the the music director that we had at our high school that I auditioned for my freshman year. He actually retired, and he got replaced by this other guy. And this other guy, his name was uh, Mr. Barkin. His name is Aaron Barkin. I'll never forget this. Aaron Barkin is one of the most influential people in my entire life, still to this day. Very awesome. And, and I remember in my freshman year when – because the, the previous guy, he kind of left in the middle of the school year. It wasn't um, – uh, you know, it, he, he didn't, like, retire – just like when the year was up, he kind of left, and then this Mr. Barkin guy kind of took over. And I can remember starting the spring semester after winter break when I was a freshman and I wasn't in band. And I kind of told Mr. Barkin, I was like, "Hey, listen, I, I really I, I want to play drums and like I want to learn." And I, I didn't get into the audition, and I was wondering if you can kind of help me. And Mr. Barkin would tell me, and he would uh you know he was like okay he's like if you really want to play drums like i'll, I'll show you what but like you know if you gotta the words that he looked at me were he's like if you want to do this and if you want to get into the band in high school and the high school band you gotta work hard and if you don't like i swear to god like i'm out i'm not gonna help you yeah and just like that because that fire for me made me do it and before first period i can still remember first period for us back then was 7 30 that was when the first class started wow. in high school and i would remember i would get to school at 6 30 i'd have to get there at 6 30 every day and at 6 30 the first thing i did i went to the band room and mr bark and me and mr barkin and he taught me everything about rhythm and everything about drums amazing he had me play on a trash can and i'll never forget that really game. for real a like, trash can like a literal trash can he flipped a yep he flipped one of those like craftsman trash cans upside down and told me and i was i, I was like dude like, what, what are we doing man like i want to fucking play wow. drums. why are we beating it on this and he goes he goes what are you talking about he goes this, this is your drum this is your drum holy shit and i was like I want to play. I'm like, what, dude? What are you talking about? I want to fucking play drums. He goes, when you're able to master this and you're worthy enough, you'll be able to play drums. But for now, this is your drum. 
So, but he actually used, but he actually used the words worthy enough. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And and it was like, dude. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. And it was like, it was some serious, like ninja, like samurai training shit. Counter mind stuff, right? Yeah. You know, and, and, and of course, because I didn't, but he like was able to, he, he bought me humility, you know, cause I was like, dude, fuck this. I want to play drums. Like, I don't want to do this shit. But he introduced the concept of humility by saying like, no, this is what you're going to play on. This is what you're going to fucking play on. And if, if you can get past this, then we'll move on to the next thing. And if you get past that, we go to the next thing. But for now, this is what you're going to play on. Like, here's some sticks. Like, here's, you know, and he would, and, and God bless him, he didn't even take sheet music. He wrote rhythms for me every day. Every day he wrote rhythms out for me on a piece of paper and said, you know, here's what we're playing. Like, take this home. I want you to practice this tonight, and then you're going to come in tomorrow, and I want to see what you can do. Oh, really? Then, so he would yeah. give you... Four fours, five fours, three fours, six eights, and just Everything. say, play them with the snares here, with the accents yep. here, with the kicks here, and yep. just that's awesome, man. Yeah, that that's yeah. actually that is so far and above any music teacher that I ever had that I almost think like I've now heard you and a couple other, not many, but a couple other people go, hey, I had this music teacher that really showed and brought out part, you know, the intrinsic part of me that felt this music already, like brought it out so my mind could interpret it. And man, that sounds like something that this guy didn't need to take that time. And that was what shocked me even then when I was a freshman in high school because I I even knew that. You know, our our band was a pretty big band. There was about 120-something kids, and he Um, took – In your high school band? Yeah. yeah, Okay, wait. So wait. Okay, hold on. I just got confused. So how big was your high school? Uh, We had – You didn't go to a high school for your small town. No, I did. I did. Yeah. Oh, wow. We, even out of the 4,000 kids that we had, we had about, uh, I think we had about 800 students. We, we were a very musically inclined high school. Like Holy in terms, shit. In terms of like marching bands competitions, uh, winter, <sighs> winter jazz competitions, we even in high school, uh, the, the name of the high school I went to was Massick, Massick High School in, in Monroe. We were very well known for music. So the, the oh. music program, just the music program was just super popular, so gotcha. a lot of kids did, did take part in it. But um, and, and you're right, he didn't. He didn't need to pick me, and he didn't need to take the time out. But I I wanted to go and learn everything that I could from him because in my mind, sure, you know, I I I got you know just constantly, and even in my freshman year, like so my freshman my freshman audition was was terrible man like i had to play with a bunch of other musicians i didn't know how to read a single note of sheet music i didn't know how to do any of that and like i just tried to play drums the best i could i had kids in my um in my high school audition and in my freshman my freshman year you know i just i blew it like i had kids laugh at me i had kids get pissed and shake their heads at me 
because like they were like, dude, you have no idea what you're doing right now, do you? And and, and I and I admit I was underprepared. Like, so, was so did you? As a kid before that, you dealt with self-esteem issues. Um, Did you feel it as a lack of connectiveness, or did you think it was something that was actually wrong with you? It was was a bit of both. I I mean, to me... Did you beat yourself up when you went home? Did you go, God, why can't I get this? Like... Did did you beat yourself up, or did you just say it was? Did you recognize that you weren't ready? Like it, yeah. It, it was it was a bit of both. It was okay. definitely a bit okay. of both. I because like that perfect example. You know, we talk about how we're you and I are both rush massive rush fans. Yeah. I like to give you a prime example. If I can just create a small uh, analogy, it would be uh, I was that kid in the subdivision music video. Like that was me. That was my. <sighs> experience a hundred okay you know aside from the small like there was a small clique of musicians in my high school that was maybe and i was one of them one of like the eight to ten musicians who all loved like dream theater and sabbath and and iron maiden and 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 motorhead and and even like tool and all of those guys and you know, I was that kid where it was like everybody would zip off in the nice car to go to the party, but like I would never get invited, and and that was that yeah. was. Yeah. But but to me, that was what happened. So in my sophomore year, when I got into band and I started taking drumming more seriously, and when I discovered, you know, all of these prog bands, and I said to myself, "This is what I really want to do for a career." My my English teacher actually came up to me. Mrs. Her name was Mrs. Gallagher, and she said, "Hey, like she was like, I want to talk to you after class for a second. I'm like, right, like whatever. I was like, I probably just fuck something up because I was like, I'm probably on my phone checking out drumming shit or like looking at you know just writing down music stuff in my notebook, and she was probably gonna yell at me for not paying attention to a lecture. She goes, and you're you're a musician, like right? Yeah. I can, oh yeah. Oh, I, come out of the band room i've seen you like you wear all these shirts and everything i said yeah 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 and why why does this have any relevance to anything and she said well she goes i want to talk to you about something she and this was back in october and she said next month in november we're going to do this thing called the names assembly and i said okay like what is that about and she said we're trying to create an assembly that is very anti-bully, uh, all-inclusive that way, you know, to kind of create some cohesion with the students. And we want everybody to feel included and, and everybody to feel, you know, like that they can be in a safe environment. And I was like, oh, okay, like that sounds cool. Like, again, what does that have to do with me? Sure. And, uh, then she said that, I know you're in a band and we would love to have somebody perform. And I was oh. like, what what the hell does that mean? And she was like, well, if your band performed at the assembly in front of the entire school, what would you think? And I was like, <laughs> like I just, I literally yeah. turned, uh, um, you know, like Homer Simpson when he sees donuts and he just can't like form syllables. I was donuts. like, right, right. I was like, this is amazing, you know, and then I, I, I called everybody up and said, you know, we, we have a gig, it's in front of the entire school, and 
My, everybody was for it except my bass player. He was kind of nervous. He was like, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't think this that's is me. I don't think this is a good idea. But uh, I, I was like, I think we can get it together. You know, I think we can get it together. All right, and, man. If I have to, if I have to. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and uh, I remember we played all of our original songs and we did two covers. And the two covers we did were uh, the first cover we did was Nothing Else Matters by Metallica. Fuck yeah. That made everybody go nuts. It was actually kind of funny because it was in front of the, you know, the whole, you know, a thousand. Uh, I think we had about like, was it? A, no, I don't think it was a thousand. Probably like a few. It was, it was definitely a few hundred. I don't think it was a thousand. But everybody would like instead of lighters, like when we played that song, nothing else matters. They took their cell phones out and used it as like a lighter kind of thing. And then the other song that we covered the system of a down was very in at the time. Sure. We covered toxicity. Of course. And, and that was, uh, we, that was our second closing song. And then we closed with an original and everybody just went fucking nuts. And, and even like in high school, in high school, how did, I, okay. Okay. You sitting there, you guys are getting ready to start toxic. To, you said toxic, Toxicity was your second to closing song, and then you had an original to close. Yes. So your guy, you're playing Toxicity. You guys are getting ready to start that. You know everybody's about to know this song. As, as soon as that fucking riff starts, everybody's going to know this song. Right. And all of a sudden, you're playing drums in the intro to Cheers. Was that the actual pinnacle moment that you went, I need to feel this forever. Yes. It was, yeah. it was, it was, it was that specific day. And it was like, I can even, and I even did a drum solo, uh, during that day. Cause the Oof. band was like, you know, cause I, cause I had a, I, at the time I had my, my Pearl export Joey Jordison kit, which was like this big eight piece kit, yeah. two, right, kit, two kick drums, you know, three rack toms, two floor toms, a snare. I had a ton of cymbals. And I can remember, you know, the jocks who used to fucking pick on me in high school and shove me and, like, you know, call me a fag, like a music fag and everything. Yep. Like, these cats came up to me and were like, dude, that was amazing. Like, that was fucking ridiculous. I was like, dude, like, you, you used to fucking, like, you used you, to like, You literally yeah. shoved me in a fucking trash can, <laughs> asshole. Right, right. Like, you, you used to, like, want to kick my ass because I love yeah. this shit. And that recognition of, like, the, and even throughout the rest of high school when I was a sophomore, and, and even, you know, my, my Mr. Barkin, who... And that was your freshman year that happened? No, my sophomore year. Oh, sophomore, sophomore year. year. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. And even my, 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 when I was already in band, sure. Mr. Who, Mr. Barkin was the guy who taught yeah, me yeah, all yeah, yeah. Of that freshman year. You know, I had never heard a teacher curse in my fucking life. I had never heard a high school teacher swear in my life, okay? Okay. And he runs, when we're done, there's this little hallway outside of the assembly area where like the, the, the kids and the students don't funnel out that way. Sure. There's like a side door and there's a little hallway and he runs like a, he makes a beeline and runs at me and he gives me the biggest hug of all time. And he goes, that was 
fucking brilliant. That was fucking amazing. You are a fucking genius. That was so great. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I just saw you do that. That was amazing. And and then... Did you cry? I, I did. I did. Were, are, are you an emotional guy? For, for big moments like that, yeah. Yeah, because all right. When that happened... Because because I, I knew when he when we worked together in my freshman years, he didn't let up. He was a hard ass. He he was a hard ass, and he would go and push me as hard as he could get away with pushing me. And when I and and I in my mind I always saw him that way. But when he just let loose and was like, that was amazing. Wow. I, how much of a hard ass he was, and he said that. And even again, I got that recognition throughout my high school of just, you're you're the drummer, like you're the drummer, dude. You're I got goosebumps all over myself right now, dog. <laughs> you know, he's like everybody was like, you're the drummer boy, like, and and even like you know, um, you know, people like who just viewed me as invisible, who were like in my Spanish class, who were like, never saw you. Kid. Were, who never saw me were like, hey, like you did that drum solo and you played like on that assembly, like that was really cool, like you did a really good job, and I just was known as like forever as the the drummer dude. Like, that's that was... that's so amazing, dude. Okay, let me ask you at that time, you had no because right now I am literally looking at Gimli but with black hair, like <laughs> like if for all the people out there who aren't seeing what I'm I'm witnessing, I. He has the most luscious long dark hair, a beard that ties perfectly in. He is a young Mike Portnoy, and he is simply simp or sipping a red fruity looking drink out of a short uh, wine <laughs> glass uh, whiskey snifter uh, with a base. It, it looks amazing, and that is I, accurate. I am imagining you looking like this at sixteen. So. Were you were you the type of uh, lusciously haired man you are now? Yes, I wasn't. My facial hair wasn't quite at that point. But I were you an early bloomer? Um, like like facial hair wise, <laughs> hair wise, pit, armpit hair. <laughs> yes, and and the main reason why is uh, both of my parents. I've been blessed in in this regard. Uh, you know, thank Odin for this. But uh, both of my parents have – both of their families have amazing hair genetics. So my, my, my mom's dad – or my grandfather, I suppose. I just always call him my mom's dad because he passed before I was born. Sure. But uh, he passed when he was in his late 60s, early 70s. And even then, he didn't have long hair, but he had a full head of hair. And it, it was barely gray. And even now – my father, who is uh, 69 years old, my father will be 70 in December. Still, my dad has predominantly mostly black hair. He's not balding. He just has a little mostly... bit of pepper, a little bit of salt with all yeah. the pepper. Yeah, he's he's got a salt and pepper thing going for sure, but still, wow. like, majority of his hair is black hair. And a lot of people are like, dude, what does your dad do? Like, does he diet? And I'm like, no, that's just. That's just it. And even in my dad's dad, or my grandfather on his side, again, I call him my dad's dad because he passed before I was born. I get uh, it. What, what was the same, the same thing? I think 
my dad's dad, he passed in his mid-60s and was, like, still just full head of black hair, hardly any gray hair. Do, 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 you, know, do, do you know genetics-wise uh, aroundabouts where you're, you're from, where, where the genetics come from? Because if I was to say, I would say a little bit Norwe- like like Nordic, but also Italian. Those are very good guesses. So my my mother is full blood Irish. Her her maiden name is Kiernan. So that's as Irish as it pretty much gets. And I'm a, my, I I am I am a Highlands Irish Crow. I am part of the Crow family <laughs> from High High Ireland. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So she so she's full blood. My my father and my mom's family specifically was from Omaha. And then my okay. dad, my dad's side of the family, my dad is half Irish and half Greek. And my dad's, uh, my dad's side of the family, the I, the Irish end anyway, was from Belfast. So both of my families hail from Northern Ireland, and the northern end of Ireland was settled by by Vikings. Yeah, was, you know, very much. Yeah. that. And so, so you have you have the low Nordic Germanic root dark hair, with the Greek beard abundancy from the bottom side. So you're you're really the Irish settlement because I I'm one of the, the the people that came from Scandinavia, and that's why I'm balding. A yeah. lot of Scandinavians <laughs> bald, dude. They get the yeah. beards, the red hair. But that the top of the head, they just they it falls out. So it's amazing. You have the you have the death. I can see it. It's I I mistook Irish or uh, Italian for Greek. That was that oh, was good. the Mediterranean kind of look. Yeah. So, but yeah, okay, cool, yeah. man. That's fucking awesome. Okay, um, I know we're running a little short on time, so I want to go to. Modern. So you moved there in 2011, right? You said uh, San Diego. Summer, summer of 2012. Summer, summer of 2012. When did you join Core? When did that happen? That happened. Jeez. Uh, that happened in about December-ish of 2012. Or actually, more like fall. It was like September. It was like either October. So pretty October short. Or- so pretty short after you arrived there, you found Brian and Doug. Yeah, I moved out in August, specifically August of 2012. I joined a band uh, called Fate's Demise. We were signed to a record label called Digital Media Records, and we did very well. Um, we were doing great. And again, I being 20, I, w- I was the young can, guy. Can I ask a very pedantic question? Yes. Is, is the demise what happened because no one listened to fate's warning? <laughs> That's, you know, and you just struck a chord with me because of fate's warning being from my home state of Connecticut. Yes. That's why I asked. Yeah. Um, no, and in many ways, I, I've always found that you know to be the case because I've always said that you know the irony of the name of that band being Fate's Demise, but then joining Core after that whole thing kind of happened was, uh, in many ways, 
beneficial for me. And I, I um, you know, I, again, being the young guy in the band, I was 20. A lot of the guys in the band were like five to six years sure. older than me. They were kind of in their mid-20s. And we just, uh, we were getting offered these very big offers to go on tour with Shadows Fall and Static X. And Ooh, all these shit. It, but but it just it never happened because everybody just kind of caved under the pressure of you know being an assigned band and it yeah. was unfortunate and like and it, and it sucked you know being you know twenty twenty one years old here I was ready to conquer the world and and I left my home to accomplish my dream and I was fucking crushed but and then it, I the demise yeah, exactly the the demise yeah. of demise. And then I found the core guys who, you know, Doug and Brian, who they kind of went un- underwent a similar situation. Yeah, they kinda, yeah. They were in this band called Silverside, and very similar to Face Demise, they were kind of kicking ass and taking names. They were doing very well. Yes, I, I, I've, I had heard of Silverside. Yeah, and they, they were doing very, very good, and then that whole thing kind of fell apart, um, and then after that they were like oh and we kind of just connected through the internet and i kind of gave them my mo and they just sort of said hey like we here's the links to our old band we sort of dealt with the same thing so there was a lot of natural connection because we had both undergone that same sure. type of, of um we so, had both undergone that same type of thing and, and that's kind of how we built it so, so th- that is so amazing to me because when I saw, we we played together in 2014, and that was like a year, a little over a year after you had moved there, a year and a half after you'd moved there, and or I guess yep. two years, and a year and a half after you joined. And you guys looked and played and presented yourselves like a band that had been playing together for 10 fucking years. It was, yeah, man. I mean, you know, when I, when I got again, like getting back to getting, when I everybody told me in high school that I was like, you know, the drummer kid, and and everybody gave me all this confidence, and then going to college and getting rejected from the music program, it was like that that failure that I had, and they said the only way that you're gonna make it in music is is you gotta be a secondary ed, ed major, you have to be a teacher. That's it. That's the bottom line. And that that failure, you know, that summer where I was getting ready to move to California and I decided in my mind I'd made it the no-nonsense decision. And when we hit, you know, the middle, uh, right after in, in the uh, spring semester was over and I made the no-nonsense decision, I told my parents yeah. what I was doing. The, the drumstick, that entire summer, the drumsticks didn't leave my hand. They just they just didn't leave my hand the entire time. Yeah. It was, you know, I, I, could, I couldn't stop. Uh, so have you turned this time that we're in right now that we're kind of finding ourselves on hold again into kind of a reevaluation damn near ten, eight to ten years later from you getting and and finding your path? You know, you're basically the 10 year anniversary of that right now. Almost. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think. It's it's really crazy to think about. And and um yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, this quarantine, I've been using it to break a lot of vices, actually, you know, and I think that I, right. I, I've been trying to be better about 
just you know stupid habitual things that I know I can be better about that I'm, I wasn't necessarily better about, and I would go you know I'm out of going out of my way to practice how to be a better boyfriend to my amazing loving uh, girlfriend Christina. <sighs> I tell you uh, what, you know. hasn't this quarantine brought out some relationship angst yeah. that that we yeah. didn't know existed? How how long have you been with your girlfriend? Uh it'll be two years in December. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Hey, let me I've been with my girl for almost thirteen years. That's amazing. And well, I will you know, thank you. You haven't been with someone for thirteen years it's wonderful you would not think you wouldn't not know somebody uh-huh. you know um and i think that the quarantine i want to speak to other people out there really the quarantine is playing tricks on you it's create it you're starting out with more angst than you normally would mm-hmm and I and I want to. That's a message I want to send everybody. We realize everybody's just a little more high strung. So instead of normally riding around on a two or a three, everybody's starting at a five. And so yeah. instead of a six, it's now an eight or a nine. And <laughs> and you know, I I just I wanted to know. That's good, man. Good working on yourself. Um, is something I would hope would happen. Um, you said you have gigs or you just got a gig with doing cover stuff, not with core. What, what's your other stuff? Yeah. Uh, well at the, at the moment, the band is not named, but, uh, we, uh, there's, you know, cause I still teach drums to a lot of different people. And, uh, we, so there was this one guy who, uh, I teach drums for his daughter and uh, she's a sweet kid, and he kind of approached me one day, and he was like, "Hey, so you know, I'm in, I'm in this, you know, cover group, and we're kind of doing, you know, this type of songs, like, you know, listed some examples yeah. of, uh, you know, they they just were doing basic stuff, like doing covers from The Knack and Journey, and you know, uh, a lot of that old school kind of like, you know, even doing Joan Jett stuff, like Electric 70s. Light Orchestra." Yeah, yeah, totally. Like a lot of that type of stuff. And he's like, you know, we have this drummer, and I know you've been teaching my daughter for a while, and the drummer that we have, it's not really working out. Like, how would you feel if we, you know, kind of came in and just paid you to to do these songs and gig with us? And I was just like, yeah, man, you know, it's cool with me, you know. And I like, I'll I'll get paid to play some Dovi and anything else. Is like, I I just want to kind of come in and just play drums and have fun, and. uh and so at the time, the project is still currently not named. We were going to get ready to gig before all of this, you know, craziness happened. Uh, so hopefully, when some of these restrictions get lifted, right. uh, we have we have plans to play in this, you know, the SoCal area to kind of uh, just, you know, get out there, play some play some tunes, and have some fun. Sure, that's fucking awesome. Okay, well, hey, I want to move into a little bit of rapid fire questions for you. Um, sure. For just to just to kind of are are you red or blue? Blue. Ooh, blue team. Uh, iced coffee or hot coffee? What time of year is it? <laughs> right now, right now. Uh, iced. Iced coffee. All right. Uh, skis or snowboard? 
snowboard. Excellent. All right. Uh, longboard or skateboard? Longboard. All right. Um, uh, Netflix or DVDs? DVDs. Fuck yes. I love that answer. Thank you. <laughs> Most people say Netflix. Okay. Um, Xbox or Xbox One? Neither. PS4. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So would you say then PS4 or PS2? Oh, God. You really put me in a difficult position. I know. I, if you were holding a gun to my head, I would say PS2. Yes. Because I am Xbox over Xbox One all day. Okay. Okay. Um, ooh, this is fun. Okay. Uh, would Would you rather have uh, a foot-long nose or a foot-long tongue? Foot-long tongue. Nice. Because you can hide it all in your mouth. It's just <laughs> a foot-long when you want it to be. Okay. Um, would you Would you rather have a dog that acts like a cat or a cat that acts like a dog. Cat that acts like a dog. All right. So you are a dog guy. Yes. Do you have puppers? Unfortunately, no. I, I do have a Neff dog that I look after. Uh, my sister has a, was, has a French bulldog that I, I babysit on a regular. He's very sweet. He's very kind. His name is Mac. He's a very sweet boy. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, do you have any pets? No, because being the nature of being a... A professional musician is, is I my age. The, the, Let me tell I, you. Not exactly in the most lucrative genre, so affording pets is. <laughs> Let me tell you. Bad. Let me tell you. Snakes are the most band friendly pet of all time. Oh man, you know it, I I I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something right now. I can't stand them because when I was I, and I know you're making a face and I feel so bad. But when I was seven, the first movie my parents ever took me to see was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And ever since then, that has made, like, the biggest fear of snakes for me still to this day. I can't stand being around them. I can't look at them. If they come on the TV, I have to look the other way. Okay. (laughs) It's going to be some some truth-telling time with you right now. Um, Sure. I feel the same way about moths. Okay. Moths. They're little and furry and flappy and gross and they can eat your clothes and they're just, everything about them is wrong. So I get you about how you feel about snakes. My only question is, have, how much actual time have you spent with a snake? Um, ever. Not a- any that I care to mention because I I just I just don't care for them. <laughs> to be to be honest, I, I I I like anytime if I go to one of my friends' houses and they just have a snake in a terrarium, I I need to be in the other room. I just it's really it's a, it, it's a crippling thing. All right, for me. yeah. All right. Or even right. going to and seeing like giant constrictors and stuff. I'm like, nope, nope, can't deal with that. <laughs> That's fucking amazing. That's fucking amazing. I I would love to introduce you to one of my snakes. Uh only not 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 one of them, but the other one of them. Um 
because I think it could change your mind. But I also understand the way that your face looks right now, that that is a solid never going to happen. So uh, that's awesome. Okay. Um, I asked you dogs and cats. You hate snakes. Uh, you're a PS2 guy. Um, oh, oh, chocolate or vanilla ice cream? Vanilla. My man. Okay. Okay. Vanilla ice cream. What is your preferred topping? You get one topping. Oh, God. Uh, peanut butter M&M's. Excellent. Excellent choice. I choose caramel drizzle, but okay. but but peanut butter is a second choice to caramel for me in all flavors. Peanut butter. Um, okay, that's cool. Thank you, dude. Of course, you are the man. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad to get a conversation with you. In learn about you. Learn kind of what drives you. Um, do you have anything to plug? I know you guys just released contag or not contagion. I'm sorry. Um, or is it contagion? Right. Uh, contagious. Yeah. Yeah. Contagious. contagious. Yeah. You guys just just put that out as a single. Do you have anything to plug? Anything to promote your social media? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, you can check out all the music that I'm a part of right now, or at least the two published forms of music that I'm that I'm uh, that you can find on all the internet outlets. You know, uh, look up Core on Spotify. That's Q U O R. The other project is uh, Son of Leviathan. That's the uh, progressive black metal group that I'm right. with as well. Uh, so those are the you know we're on YouTube, Spotify, all of that type of stuff. And if you want to uh, check me out on social media, Facebook is just John Michael Cordes, my full name. And then my uh, my Instagram, which is Facebook and Instagram are the two most you know social media platforms that I'm the most. And my Instagram is just jmc.drums. So. Yeah, yeah, jmc.drums, which is what I remember you because I, I think it's so cool. You have one of those names, which is like, like one of you have that musician name, John Michael Cortez. Like, like it just it works out. It's an initial JMC. It 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 flows. Everything is kind of really almost uh, verbose in how accurate it is. Your look, your your attitude, um, dude. I love like. Here's what I love. I love watching your social media content, your presence on social media. You're such a positive guy. You talk about uh, working through self-anxiety. You talk about working through uh, inner struggles and uh, doubting yourself. And, 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 and you know, you talk a lot about what inspires you. And you are a passionate, uh, progressive musician. And uh, it's, it's fun for to watch from another musician side. It's fun to have known you and actually shared shared the stage with you at one time in our lives six years ago, which really seems like another time. I mean, if you were to go back to 2014, could you ever imagine thinking 2020 would look like 2020 looks like right now? Definitely not, man. Definitely not. <laughs> right. Right. And so to think that's the time we shared time together. Um, uh, I love you, man. This has been fucking great. Love you too, brother. Yeah, this this has been a great chat, man. I, I'm, I'm thank you, thank you so much again for 
having me on. And it's like, and I appreciate all those kind words, man. It's like, I, I haven't been able to do what I do without the people around me throughout my career. That's what shaped all of this. It's, you know, sharing the stage, you know, with my bandmates, especially, you know, Brian and Doug, like just you know, being able to learn as much as I have to with them and sharing the stage and me- making memories with people like you, like everyone. Yeah always talks about you know oh that's so cool you get to like go and tour in different places in the world with core and but but i i we didn't even talk about japan i wanted to talk about japan but that turned into you know that that's that's next time we get back together man because we have to do another one we'll 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 squeeze that in on the next talk which i'm very looking forward to by the way we we have to Uh, yeah, absolutely. We, I, I will clear, dude, for you, I will clear whatever I need to clear in order to talk with you again. Um, but but yeah, I, I getting back to the point, Liz, like I haven't been able to do all of that without people like you and everybody else who has been there and has been for that there for that support. Like I just I haven't been able to accomplish what I've been able to accomplish without without those people like yourself. So. Fuck yeah! All right, well I'm I see so, you know I. This show has recently undergone a transition for the first three years of the podcast. I had a co-host and we, it was a two person podcast and my best friend of all time moved to Colorado. Um, we moved to Portland from Alaska to start a band. And, you know, after seven years of being here and playing music together, he moved to Colorado and, and life just moves on and everything pushes forward. So now that, I'm hosting this podcast by myself and it's a solo enterprise. Um, I've, I've started reading poetry at the, at the end of every show. And so with you uh, here, I'm going to, I'm going to read three short nonsensical poems um, because I, I'm not a fan of, of big existential poetry or things that necessarily have to be profound and make sense. I am a fan of nonsense. I am a fan of um, being profound in a way that makes you wonder what you just fucking listened to at the end of it. So so I'm going to read a couple poems here. Um, all right. The first one is pretty fun. It is a, uh, a poem about Einstein. There was a young lady named Bright who traveled much faster than light. She set out one day in a relative way and came back the previous night. I find that that's, that was a poem written by Arthur Henry Reginald Bueller in the 1930s. uh, After Einstein had published his uh, general theory of relativity. And I think it's a fabulous poem. Um, Here's here's a great one. I found strumming around the internet's this this week. Um, the ostrich roams the Great Sahara. Its mouth is wide, its neck is narrow. It has such long and lofty legs. I'm glad it I'm glad it sits to lay its eggs. And that That's was cool. And that was written by Ogden Nash uh, a long time ago. Yeah. Could you imagine an ostrich that stood and laid eggs standing? Yeah, that's, that's kind of wild. <laughs> they would just break. 
Um, and the last one that I'm going to read for the evening and then let you go, my friend. Uh, I'm leaving you with this, and this is the most nonsensical that I found. When Sporgles spanned the Floriet Mead and Cogwaz and Cogwogs gleet upon the lee, Ufia gop to meet her love, who smegged upon the Equat Sea. Dately she walked agloss the sand, the boreal wind seat in her face, the mogling waves yelped at her feet, pangwangling was her pace. And that That's is, a- yeah. And that is by Harriet R. White. That's beautiful. It is. It is. Pro, it is amazing. I. I am so moved by the words that are were uttered there. Um. It. it yeah. It does things. <laughs> Anyways, man. Thank you for being here. Thank you for talking and uh, enduring. What? What? Honestly, I envisioned us having an hour hour and a half long conversation and we've been almost three hours and so (laughs) and it 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 became apparent really quickly that we would have no problem actually talking and and uh and really quickly i felt an energy and a camaraderie with you that i that that felt reminiscent of when we met last time and uh i was reminded quickly why we're friends so thank you for being here buddy for sure man you know thanks again for having me on and uh, yeah i agree you know it's this this has been fun it's like you know even in my mind yeah i was kind of envisioning that but for all the great questions you ask and you know all of these great conversations that we have dude i i feel like i could talk with you for a whole other three hours if if you know we if our schedules both deemed it you know, available. Of course. <laughs> well, hey, I know you have to work early in the morning. I'm sorry for keeping you so long. Um, um, thank you, brother. And we'll talk soon. Cheers, brother. I hope to hear from you soon. Have Take a great care. night. Love you, buddy. You too. Love Bye. you too. Peace. Well, wasn't that amazing, friends? John Cordes. Man, that guy's amazing. Um, whew. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. We really went everywhere. I really wasn't, I really wasn't understanding or, or even anticipating where that could have gone. Um, but this has been a journey through time and stuff. I'm going to leave you guys right here because I think that podcast really and truly said all I could say. Uh, love you guys. Bye. Oh, drive like you know each other and stuff. <laughs>